days Pronouncing it in several ways And moving letters all around And substituting every sound Fault. 
Hi, everybody. We're live. There we go. I got to get in the chat. I'm so, I'm way off my game today. Fair enough. I was working on uh, some right before the show started, and I paused for the show, and now I'm like in that annoying mode where <laughs> I'm thinking about that thing I was working on and uh, not thinking about what I should be thinking about. Now, when you say pause. <laughs> Jason Cipher, everyone. Yeah, I feel like we should all like uh, kiss our fingers and point up to the sky now or something. <laughs> oh, God. Is this wow. a reference I'm not getting? So like Me and Casey, sport. the reference getters. Yeah. Right, Casey? Yeah, totally. Uh, no, that, that's, among other things, you could call that a sports ball reference. Okay. I couldn't even tell you which sport you're talking about. <laughs> no, it's every sport, Marco. Every single sport. And the Grammys and the Oscars. Everything. It's yeah, a reference to everything. Still, it's a reference to life. Yeah. Um, on a completely random note... A while back, this is easily two or three months ago, I um, was fiddling around and tried to teach myself React, not React Native, just straight up React, and wrote a showbot in React. And I dug it up. <laughs> um, I dug it up this morning. And it is at showbot-r on the web if you'd like to see it probably die in a terrible, awful fire. But it is presently working, which is exciting. When do you and ads uh, tonight. That's actually oh, what I was working on. That's cool. It's a, I mean, I think you have a bit of a layout issue, but, uh, but I actually think on the desktop it's not bad. But oh boy, does mobile look shitty. Well, they're just the text is really tall. Maybe this yeah. is me blocking things. Hold on. Oh, no, this is Chrome. This isn't blocked. Um, yeah, it's like because it's pushing down the entire nav bar really far. Which I'm okay with because I don't really have the width to do them adjacent, I don't think, but I'd well, like to play it. It looks like a mistake, though, like the way it pushes it down like that. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, i got to fiddle with it more. Feel free. To, if you want to copy what I do uh, on, on narrow layouts, feel free. Um, but what was I going to say? Yeah, so if you look at it, if you get... I mean, I was trying not to tell you to this because it looks like utter shit right now, but if you shrink your window really, really thin or look at it on iOS, it's just fucking terrible. I really got to mess with it a lot. Um, what I think I'm going to do, I, I'll, I might crib what you're doing, but what I was planning on doing is making it horizontal. So image on the left, text on the right and, uh, yeah, below yeah. the header. I honestly haven't looked at yours. I don't know what you're doing, but now John, I assume you're going to have an opinion, uh, on the different placement and coloring of the upvote arrows on the show <laughs> R compared to the regular Showbot. Everything was not, uh, correctly aligned, like along the center line of the page. So I had to close the window. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Also, you know, if any uh, web application framework should have an exclamation point at the end of its name in the grand tradition of Yahoo, it's React. It should be React. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, this showbot thing I just bring up because I was curious to see if it actually survives. And so far it has. Uh, if I remember right, I, I don't I could look, but um, I don't recall off the top of my head. Uh, it actually was about the same amount of code as the non React showbot, which is. Um, delightful i guess but i have like components that i can reuse we now so this is using the same back end it's just a front end change is that that's right well it depends on where you draw the line between back end and front end but if i understand the principle of what you're asking that is correct yeah well because like the the voting is synced like it's between these two different showbot front ends it's mm -hmm. the same mm -hmm. titles and everything so sure uh interesting yeah i mean i i don't know it's 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 completely uh, the client side stuff is rewritten, but 
that being said, it's all hitting the same server. You know, it's all hitting the same endpoints on that server, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. It's weird. So uh, it's 165 lines. That's including white, you know, blank spaces, comments, etc. Uh, on the React version, it is 180 on the straight jQuery version. So I've saved 15 lines. Woo woo. That's worth rewriting the entire thing. Yeah, totally. I mean, I did it to teach myself React. Well, that's what I was going to say earlier. I did it to teach myself React, and the funny thing is I'm looking at this code, and I'm like, what the fuck is this stuff doing? I have no idea what's happening anymore because it was like two months ago, and I've not touched it since. Well, one of us has to play with new things on a regular basis. That's certainly not going to be you two old farts. Definitely not me. John has a chance, maybe. Uh, New versions of Perl. Yeah, woo! All sorts of new things. Exciting new versions of jQuery that uh, leave IE8 behind. Oh, I didn't realize that was a thing now. It's a thing. The best is like, uh, you know, so it supports IE nine and above. But even in IE nine, you have to convince IE to pretend that it's a good browser by like forcing the, you know, like a meta tag for like edge turn. Make sure edge mode is enabled because like the first time I loaded, I'm like, what? The, what? I thought this said this thing works in IE nine. What is it complaining about? Oh, I have to tell IE, don't be stupid. Edge mode, please. And then, oh, okay, yeah. Now all of a sudden, oh, stupid. Anyway, web fun do i have to be testing in edge is that is it different enough that i need to care or no it's like it's like edge mode in ie9 i'm not talking about the actual like browser like there's ie9 there's ie10 i think there's even ie11 and then there's that whatever the hell that other thing is i i just i really (laughs) yeah i i the i fought a long a long time and uh i don't know if i fought but anyway uh, the path of my career has been you used to, I used to be a thorn in our side, but you just had to deal with it because everybody had it. And eventually we came to uh, this place where we can develop, do our web application development for a set of modern browsers. And then only at the very, very end, see now what kind of disaster is this in, in the various versions of IE that we support. And then <laughs> sort of like spackle over them and try to make it better. With those. It used to be the reverse. You had to make it work in IE and everything. And then you could see if there were some nice things you could do in the modern browsers. Now... Develop everything against Chrome, Firefox, or Safari, or I suppose even Opera. And then at the very end, when you're done and you're happy with it, it's like, all right, now let me load it in IE, and you just you just grit your teeth and you're just like, oh. Is Opera still? Did they switch to WebKit? Do they still maintain their render, or is it all WebKit now? I don't remember. I remember that, that sounds vaguely familiar to me, but uh, I have never had a job where I have had to support Opera, ever. No, nobody ever has. <laughs> maybe someone who people who work for the opera you know the company that makes the opera website maybe May, do you think even they use opera yeah someone's gotta <laughs> oh wow. we're gonna we're gonna get so little email yep yep but all three devout users that 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 also happen to listen to this show are gonna be very upset <laughs> extremely good thing about that feedback anyway uh we should probably do some follow-up and we have some follow-up, uh, and I would blame this on John, but this is not John's fault. Um, I have actually added a bit of follow-up, and I'd like to start with a bit. At two, KC. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm sorry, Marco. Um, by the way, that's a reference to Shakespeare, I believe, Julius Caesar. Anyway. I don't think it's uh, just Shakespeare. I think it's Julius Caesar, like, period. <laughs> I think that that's just Shay. like a thing that was most likely true, that he most likely said something to that effect, possibly. Fine, fine. Everyone's a critic, right? So um, David S. wrote in, and he wanted to tell us that the TrackPoint mouse, which we discussed a lot last episode, has been scientifically proven, well, 
by IBM to be more accurate than a trackpad. So David S. writes, in the late 90s, I worked at IBM's user systems ergonomics research group for a short time. The group did all sorts of user interface research, including designing and testing new types of keyboards and pointing devices, but they're also known for having invented the track point. So, of course, as part of that development, they did lots of tests on the ergonomics of the track point. The results are very interesting. As I recall, people were both faster and more accurate when using, using a track point compared with a track pad. I believe the difference was small for people who were novices on both devices, but they also found that people got much better with some experience on the track point and that a week of experience made a big difference. Um, blah, 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 because the accuracy uh, differences were small for novices and, and because the track point interface was a little easier to figure out initially, people actually tended to like the track pads more at first um, or, for example, when using a computer in the store. And then he has provided a link to Microsoft of all places that has what appears to be a scan of this research paper. So apparently it has been scientifically proven that track points are better if you believe IBM. Well, also like... IBM, the maker of track points, did one study that proved in the nineteen nineties. Right. That track right. points were slightly <laughs> better than the track pads of nineteen ninety. Exactly. You know, and that's like track pads when they first came out really were terrible. And they they really did get a lot better in the early two thousands and you know, throughout the two thousand to twenty ten interval, like as mostly let's be honest, as Apple made them better because the PC industry's trackpads still usually, as we said last time, really suck. Uh, compared to anything good and usable. Um, but trackpads really have, re like, modern trackpads are, with the exception of the Force Touch, <clears throat> way, way, way better than what they were probably testing against. Whereas track it, points probably have not really changed since then, because there if, just isn't that much to change about them. If they tested, uh, like, a series of tests where you have to involve typing and mouse cursor, that's where the track point would really shine because that's its big advantage, especially for people who are good typists or touch typists, is that you don't have to relocate. You can sort of keep your hands in the same position and have ready access to cursor movement and clicking buttons and typing all at the same time. So you'd, I, I assume that they would do well there. But, yeah, the trackpads of the 1990s were just these little tiny things that, like, it was barely enough room to move your fingers, like, an inch and a half by an inch and a half, like, very small so you're trying to navigate a screen the screens weren't that much smaller the screens were still like 15 inch laptops existed trying to move a cursor around a 15 inch screen by swiping your finger around a little plastically plasticky two by two square uh not, not very fun but i would imagine that uh the trackpads would do it anyway everyone should use mice at the end so you two beat the piss out of me because you say that it's scientifically proven that vinyl's better here it is i give what? you yeah. a scientific <laughs> Uh, scientific study that track points are better and oh no it's not good enough. well i mean it's one study it's done by the company that invented the track point so there's it's perhaps a little bit biased and unlike vinyl and cds track pads have changed since the 1990s vinyl not changed since the 1990s only to perhaps get worse and the knowledge of how to correctly master them <laughs> gone away so that's the only thing that's happened to vinyl cds the format is exactly the same the specs are exactly the same nothing has changed related to cds since the 1990s screw right. you guys i'm going home that's a vinyl. reference, by the way. Um, in other news, speaking of uh, inferior pointing devices, there are so many tap-to-click wizards in our audience. Who knew? So many self-proclaimed tap-to-click wizards. <laughs> oh, people, people <laughs> Everything who... has a caveat. Right. Well, no, I'm, I'm saying like they I, I believe that they they believe they are self-tap-to-click <laughs> wizards, like the, basically that they don't they don't perceive any impairment to using tap to click. That it is the way they prefer to do it. They are never frustrated by it. It is not a compromise that they are dealing with. They don't accidentally make any clicks. Uh, it's just you know they're they are tap to click wizards according to my definition of like you know we're saying 
I was saying that I'm not one because whenever I turn on tap to click, I find myself inadvertently doing things that I didn't intend to do. And that pisses me off and it makes me turn that mode off. Right. But these people tap to click wizards. No problem with it whatsoever. Does it mean they never make any kind of errors or do they make the errors? And it doesn't bother them either way. They're basically tap to click wizards because it's the way they prefer to work. None of them expressed any sort of caveats about like, well, I, I use it all the time and it only annoys me a little bit. They were like, nope, I'm a wizard. So I guess those guys can start a club. <laughs> oh, I demand a see proof and a scientific study done by them. No, no, they they are they they are tactical quizzes. I just didn't think there were that many people who basically don't have any like there's no downsides for them for using tap to click and it's probably people who like learned on it you know who never who just like once they found out that was a mode and like the first you know day that they got their laptop turned it on and like that's how they use a laptop and that's how they've trained themselves to uh to use they, they don't have any other habits that they're breaking right they're just this is the this is the way they've built their habits right and maybe maybe they actually just accept that a certain degree of unreliability is just part of using a trackpad. I'm willing to believe that a large part of them actually don't have accidental tap to clicks because that gets to the the next uh, feedback from ML, whose name consists of two capital letters separated by a space. I don't understand how you would accidentally click with tap to click. Uh, if you put a finger down and leave it, then it's not a click. If you put a finger down and lift it back up, then it is a click. Uh, on last show, we, we used the wrong terminology in terms of, like, how much force you apply. But that's basically, you know, there's no force sensor. It's basically, oh, there wasn't back in the day. Um, uh, it's timing-based. Uh, and the reason I personally accidentally do clicks is all my habits around trackpad use involve don't involve making sure that I don't accidentally touch the surface, like, briefly or brush against it with some other finger or whatever. That leads to the other trackpad setting that we didn't talk about last time, which is what the hell is that the phrasing of it? Like drag lock. Uh, ignore unintentional. It's been phrased oh, right. Yeah. Ignore unintentional taps, or that one is infuriating because what it, the, the trackpad is trying to figure out what's an accident and what's not, and it will go into this mode where it's like, oh, I'm going to ignore that because it looks like an accident. And then you try to do something legit and it ignores you, and you become furious. You're like, no, accept my command. My finger is moving. Um, but anyway, all my habits are were not designed around the idea that. I have to be cognizant of how long my finger is in contact with the trackpad because if it is in contact with the trackpad too briefly, that counts as a click. And so that's just not how my hands work. And I have years of using trackpads without tap to click uh, before I, you know, be before tap to click became even a thing, probably, but certainly before I ever tried to turn it on. Um, so I'm accidentally hitting the trackpad because during the course of using a trackpad, my fingers briefly come in contact with the trackpad in ways that register as clicks, but I'm not intending to click at all. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens enough that I find it infuriating. Right, because it, it's like if you tr if you need to do a very, very small, fast cursor movement, uh, like if you need to move the mouse over like one or two pixels on screen, it is very easy for that to be misinterpreted because you know the way it differentiates is not just how quick the, the tap is, but how much it has moved during the, during the touchdown time span. Uh, because obviously, if you mean to tap to to click, then it's going to be effectively unmoving. But of course, there's going to be a very small amount of movement a lot of time just because of imprecisions and the way people work. So it has to determine in software the difference between a, an intentional small quick movement of the cursor and a tap to click. And and that is not a perfect science, and it never will be. There's always going to be some little you know flex margin of error there where it's going to guess wrong sometimes. Yeah, and they have so to build that in. If you're doing certain things that require small, fast cursor movements, you will probably hit this problem more often than if you're not doing that kind of movement. 
and they have no choice but to put that in. They can't make you like they can't demand that you precisely put your finger down and precisely lift it up without moving it, because that would mean it would become very difficult. They just have to build in that margin to make it comfortable for people to actually use tap to click. But that same margin is what makes you accidentally activate it. And uh, I think the reason, you know, control freaks like me are so uh, against tap to click because A, we have this error rate and B, the error rate is potentially very like we have dialogue buttons with uh, dialogue boxes with buttons in them. The buttons are close to each other. If you were to move the cursor over from one button to the other, that's not very far. And if it actually registers as a click that did cancel or okay when you want to do the opposite, that could be a data destructive operation. Like there's not that you'd be hitting dialogue buttons with uh, mouse cursor anyway. But yeah, anyway, <laughs> a, a, a bad click in the wrong place at the wrong time, even if it's just accidentally having a bad click that you didn't realize, uh, put the input focus into a window, uh, into the window that you didn't think you were typing in and get one of those wrong window situations. Like, it, you know, Data loss, wrong window stuff. I just, yeah, I don't like it. All right, then. That's the final verdict. I don't like it. <laughs> All right, so what does uh, Rich at the Pond have to say? He was giving a defense of trackballs. Uh, and oh, the idea uh, behind this is if you, uh, due to old age or if you have any other sort of motor problems, sometimes it's difficult to, and I've seen uh, people with this problem in real life, um, to position the cursor over something and click without moving the cursor again. And when the button and the thing that moves are separate, like they are in a trackball, you move the ball, you're moving the cursor. You take your hands totally off the ball, then you can press the button at your leisure. Usually the buttons are very large and they are separate from the ball. And you can be sure that where you're clicking is where the cursor is. So it's better for people with motor impairments. Um, trackpad is similar when they have the button on it, but uh, you know the physical button, but that's gone now. And now, like, you know, you move the cursor on the trackpad to get where you want. Then you can kind of take your hand off and just go vertically down and click and be sure, you know. But anyway, a, a trackball with a separate button and a separate ball does have that advantage. All right. Uh, let's see. Oh, next. Right. So I'd asked at the end of the last episode, or toward the end of the last episode, hey, what's the deal with Apple Sim? And I had asked kind of without having done any research on it, because this is the accidental tech podcast. Uh, a couple of people were very upset. I didn't do research on this before bringing it up. Hi, welcome to the show. Anyway, um, Lady Whimsy, who is a retail employee, weighed in on this and also provided the official link, which we'll put in the show notes. Um, she had said that there doesn't appear to be info on this. Actually, she had later provided that. So just kidding. Anyway, uh, I'm a retail employee. AT&T is the only car carrier that locks the SIM. Uh, Verizon opted out of Apple SIM in its entirety, um, and you can swap SIMs. So if you're going to get Verizon service, you have a completely segregated Verizon SIM. And then if you want to use the Apple SIM, you can use T-Mobile and I believe Sprint and AT&T. But the moment you engage AT&T, that SIM gets locked. Um, so she continues, when AT&T is selected as the carrier, a pop-up warns you. But you can always purchase an additional Apple SIM for $5, which I didn't know. And that's really cool. Um, and additionally, a Verizon SIM is free at her store anyway. You just have to ask for it. All of that was extremely useful information. I was very glad that Lady Whimsy uh, reported in. And like we said, we'll, uh, we'll put a link to the official documentation in the show notes about this. So uh, any this, thoughts on that? Does this set a new record for the cheapest thing you can buy in an Apple store? I was going to say, it's cheaper than iPod be. socks. And the, the $10 uh, MagSafe adapter. I mm -hmm. just bought another one of those, actually. <laughs> Although, if we're going to go by volume or weight, it may still be more expensive <laughs> than the MagSafe <laughs> adapter. That's true. These things are... Well, they're not heavy by any means, but they're a heck of a lot heavier than one of the micro nano whatever sims. I can you can you fold a five dollar bill 
to be smaller than a sim. I don't think you can. I don't think so. Not these new sims, at least. Even even the first kind of sim, I don't, even that I think was too small. Yeah, I don't remember. It, probably, um, but anyway, that was extremely useful feedback, and, and there were some other people that wrote in as well. And so, thank you to everyone who um, who provided some of that from some of that information. But it sounds like you know, obviously, the the easiest answer, which I don't know why I didn't even think of this, and uh, Nathan A reminded me in the chat room, just use the same darn Sims. Like, why not just do that? I, I it just completely escaped me. But anyway. Um, but if I weren't to use my existing Sims, I can use I can I can potentially get two Apple Sims, one for AT&T, one for T-Mobile and then a Verizon Sim as well for it looks like maybe five extra dollars, which is a pretty, pretty slick setup. Uh, moving on, we got some feedback about domestic carriers, uh, one by Chris Niles. Um, he said, as a genius, the number of iPhone users I see for cellular issues are mostly Sprint then T-Mobile and Verizon, and last, AT&T, meaning that AT&T was the best of all. Um, this is from three different markets, he said, the Bay Area, Seattle, and Denver. Um, and then we got some really long feedback from someone who I believe wanted to remain anonymous. Uh, I didn't get a chance to read all that. Did you guys look at that? I looked Which one, at the signal, signal strength one and yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. indoor repeaters and stuff? Yes. I read most of it, but didn't retain most of it. But one of the points that a lot of people brought up, we were asking how you get such good signal inside Moscone or whatever, is they have indoor antennas that are just for the people inside the building um, and so you're competing with only the people inside the building instead of everybody out in san francisco and the antenna is really close to you uh, uh and uh, the person who sent us the email about spectrum and stuff had some tips for like switching to 3g when everyone else is on 4g because sometimes you just can't get the attention like you you can receive the signal plenty strong in like a stadium or something but your send signal is bombarded by is, is interfering with everyone else's send signal so if you switch to 3g you might actually have a better experience uh, that was uh, a good uh, letter, but it was also very long um, and probably doesn't really fit into follow-up. I would like to read the rest. I, I only got to it like right before the show started, so I didn't have a chance to read the whole thing. But I, I do want to go back and read the rest because it seemed like it was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And the, the next section of the follow-up here is all people telling us about uh, why, uh, why carriers might have changed the way you buy phones. Uh, as opposed to uh, the subsidized phone model where you pay a certain amount for a phone, the carrier pays Apple the rest of the price of the phone, and then you pay a monthly fee to pay back the subsidy, and then some going with the model where there is no subsidy, and you basically you, the, the price of the phone is spread out over the course of your bills. All right. That's a pretty good summary. <laughs> yeah, and so Benjamin Glickman's got the first theory here. Uh, well, does he have the first one? I think someone else. Uh, maybe someone moved it. The first theory. Oh, here it is. Uh, someone. Derek. Yeah. Derek Beachy. Yeah. <laughs> Not Derek me. Verestablium, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> says, the big thing that we're missing is that the upfront cost for a big, fancy, expensive phone is zero dollars. That it's not like, oh, well, I used to be able to get a, the top of the line iPhone for two hundred dollars and then a monthly fee. And now I, I'm going to realize the full giant cost of the iPhone is actually like $700 or $800. It's now that, that the cost of the phone is $0 because they just take whatever the cost of the phone is, divided by 12 or 24, and then add that to your bill. And so it seems like from the customer's perspective, it has the advantage of being like, oh, uh, you know, every phone is a free phone now, uh, even though you're paying the exact same money or possibly more. It's just spread out into your various bills. Uh, there are a lot of theories that... Um, that this will increase upgrade frequency because you get the same monthly payment. And I mean, this goes kind of goes against what Marco was saying was like these, these thing where you spread out the cost of the phone over multiple months, 
will end. And when it ends, you don't have to pay for the phone anymore. And so one side of this coin is, oh, well, then people will just keep upgrading their phone as soon as the payment ends. And the other side of the coin is what Marco was saying. People will be like, oh, my bill decreased and my phone is still good. So why would I get a new phone? So I don't know which one of those behaviors is going to win out uh, when people start signing up for these things. Presumably the entire rest of the world knows because, as stated on the past show, this is how a lot of the rest of the world pays for the phones already. Uh, but there are two sides to that coin. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see you know, whether more people now will choose the bigger storage tiers uh, based, on, based on this new pricing. And if anything, this gives Apple even less of a reason to drop the 16 gig because now it's even easier for people to spend more money on the higher models. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's roughly my opinion of that as well. Yeah. Jeffrey says the new plans cost significantly more for less, as in the carriers are going to charge you more for the similar size plan and you will like either won't notice or won't care because they'll be adding the phone price into it and it'll just be all confusing. Yeah, it's like, are the rates actually going down without the subsidy? Like, if I buy my phone outright, just get it unlocked or whatever, and then own it outright, am I actually going to be paying a lower bill after moving to this system? Because I, I tried to find this out on AT&T's site, and it's very confusing, and I couldn't figure it out. But yeah, as far as I could tell, I'm actually not going to be paying any less money on the bill. You have to have a big spreadsheet and keep it up to date because they change the numbers all the time. You can get special deals depending on where you're coming from. You just have to keep redoing the math. Like, has it ever been cheaper to buy an unlock phone and then pay a monthly fee? Uh, is it cheap? You know, which is cheaper if they'd still done the subsidy or if they just take the price of the phone divided by 12 or 24 and add it to your bill? What bill are they adding it to? Is the bill they're adding it to bigger than it was before? So the total comes out. You just got to do the math yourself. But the bottom line, here's the bottom line with all this stuff in the U.S. anyway. What are you going to do about it? You got like two three choices if you're lucky one of those choices is probably super crappy so really you've narrowed it down to two and like the the amount of sort of unspoken collusion in these industries and the the huge barriers to entry mean that there's very little connection between the value of the service you're getting and how much money you pay and so we're just we're all screwed um so like worrying about this is it's almost academic um Aaron E. has another theory about this, saying it was, um, he says it's primarily voted by the FCC that was pressuring cell phone companies to get rid of their early termination fees because they had really high fees for like if you bail on your contract early. And so the cell phone, this, this theory is the cell phone company's way around this is, all right, we won't have early termination fees uh, anymore. What we'll do is we'll give you a phone for $0 and we're essentially loaning you the rest of the money for the phone that you will slowly pay back over the course of your plan. But if you bail early, of course you have to give us back the money we loaned you to buy your $800 phone. So instead of an early termination fee, it's like, oh, and by the way, you got to pay us. It's like a loan. And then you sort of exit the the contract. And it's like, well, you got to pay back the loan because you've been using the phone. You've got the phone. So that's their way of getting around the early termination fee while still making sure that if you leave the plan early, you got to pay a whole bunch of money to them, which motivates you to stay. Um, uh, We have a bunch of links to uh, various FCC complaints uh, and things related to this for the show notes. All right. Anything else on the carriers? And any other follow-up? Going once, going twice, John. No, wow. that's, that's it. Well, that actually, you got to say, I mean, nobody can see these show notes. This was like two and a half pages of follow-up, and we covered that pretty quickly. I'm, I'm pretty proud of us. Yeah, I was L- afraid when I saw this list. <laughs> Especially after last week having none, I figure this would really go long. Yeah, so in order to celebrate how quickly we went through this follow-up. Marco, why don't you tell us about something that's awesome? Our first sponsor this week is Fracture. Go to FractureMe.com and use promo code ATP15 for 15% off your first order. Now, Fracture prints photos in vivid color 
directly on glass. So here's what this means. You know, we, we all have all these photos that we take these days with these awesome phone cameras or my crazy new camera, whatever the case may be. We all have lots of photos these days. There's more photos than ever. People are taking more photos than ever, and that's really, really good. The problem is that back in the old days, you'd get photos printed, and then you'd have this physical artifact, and you could store it away somewhere. You could display it. You could flip through. You could show it. You could see it more often. Nowadays, we have more pictures than ever, but we look at them less than ever because they're all just buried in our camera roll or they're put on social things and then they just kind of fall off the timeline and we never see them again. So now more than ever, I think we really need to take advantage of things that can take our pictures and show them back to us or display them or let us share them with our loved ones in, in a more, you know, in a less fleeting way than just posting it on Facebook or whatever. So Fracture lets you print photos. And this is, this is like the, the most modern kind of print I've ever seen. Uh, you know, in, in, this is like the opposite of when we were all growing up, when we'd like go to the drugstore and get like the little, little like slightly curved floppy prints from the glossy paper and the timestamp printed, if you were lucky, on the back of the, of the picture instead of the front. Uh, and, it, you know, the, and, you know, going and flipping through and seeing half your pictures were terrible and you just paid $10 for this and everything. Anyway, uh, Fracture is way better than that. This is the modern take on photo printing. So it is photos that are printed on a glass surface. So you have this nice, thin, lightweight piece of glass. The ink is on the back side of it, but it's so thin it looks like it's right on the surface. And then there's like a thin layer of foam board behind that so the foam board can then hook onto a picture hanger or it can stand up on your desk for the smaller sizes. They have like a desk mount option or like a desk stand option. Um, but for the most part, I get the big ones and I, and I, I, uh, I hang them on, on little photo nails. And they're huge and they're beautiful and they're light. So it is like no stress to put this thing on your wall. And they also have small ones too, and the small ones are really affordable. Uh, I actually I have I have a number of the small ones as well. Uh, they have small squares that start at five by five inches for I think it's like fifteen bucks. It's really, it's really really affordable. Plus that's before our coupon code ATP fifteen for fifteen percent off your first order. Uh, and these things look fantastic. Uh, they I I have my app icons printed on the wall. I got a couple of Instagram pictures. Got a couple of pro pictures. Like I, I even have an illustration that wasn't even a picture. It was actually somebody's watercolor um, from Tonks from Back Forever Ago. It's like these coffee things. It looks great. I have that. I got some big photos, small photos. And these prints look amazing. I always get compliments on them whenever people come to my office or our house and they see these. They also make great gifts. Uh, they're, they're so affordable. And you can do it all online, of course. And, and so you can so easily send these beautiful glass prints of, the, of your pictures to friends, family members, loved ones. You can send them as, as gifts. You can send them as pranks. It doesn't matter. There are so many things you can do with Fracture. And the prints, again, they look fantastic. So check it out today. Go to FractureMe.com. Use promo code ATP15 to get 50% off your first order. I really cannot recommend these highly enough. These are real vivid photos printed directly on glass. The quality is great. They look great. You don't need to frame them or anything. They, they, just, they are their own edge-to-edge awesome glass print. And it is by far the best, and in my opinion, the best. And, and it's also uh, probably also the most affordable way to get pictures on your wall that look great. And great gift, as I said. Can't recommend them enough. FractureMe.com, code ATP15. Thanks a lot. I'm glad I kept forgetting to make the fracture art I wanted to. I decided I'm going to, since I don't have app icons to put on a wall like Marco, I figure I can put up the logos of all the podcasts that I've been on or associated with in some uh, substantial way and to make fractures of all those and line up. But I kept forgetting to do the artist, and I'll use our code. Yeah, well, I haven't decided what size I'm going to get. What size are your icons? I, I get the, the smallest. It's the 5 by 5 square. 
Uh, it's great for Instagram uh, prints and stuff. Um, let me see. I think uh, I'm looking behind me. Uh, those actually look a little bit bigger. Those might be seven by seven or whatever. The next size up. Anyway, five by five is is great. If you have if you have the, the little one that we made of us in the Macworld studio, yep, that's five by five. Yeah, no, it looks kind of small on my wall. I don't know if I. Well, it depends on how many icons there are. I, I gathered up all the high res artwork from all the people who are associated with the shows who would have access to that. So I think I have. I can go a little bit bigger, but I don't know. Yeah, we'll it depends see. on like your viewing distance too. You know where you're putting them and everything. Yep. But yeah, it's it's great. All right, moving on. What's next? Uh, it's uh, Notebook Xeons, oh, which God. is something I could not pa- possibly care less about. Oh, no, no that's not true. You should care. Everyone should care. All right, tell this. me why. Tell me why. Well, so the announcement is the, another one of these Intel half announcements where they're like, uh, they announced that they're going to make Xeons uh, uh, with power specs so they can go in notebooks, but they don't have all the details on them quite yet. Kind of like how they announced all the Skylake stuff, but we have to wait for uh, IDF for the, all the details. Anyway. Intel uh, is I, so good at half-assed announcements. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why they do that. But anyway, we'll, we'll find out when we find out. But uh, we know enough. I think we know enough to be kind of excited. And it's kind of excited in a dumb way. Because we talked about it in the past. What is the difference between a Xeon and the rest of the Intel chips? And there's things to be said about, well, like they're more conservative and they're lagging behind the other things. And maybe they give you the ones that are, uh, you know that have fewer manufacturing defects or something like you can do this hand wavy kind of like these are the fancy expensive ones but the things that count are they spec them out with way more pci express lanes which is why they can go in the mac pro uh perhaps not for the xeons and the notebooks but that remains to be seen uh and the second big thing is that they have ecc ram and can usually support more ram and those two things i think are super important um in apple's quote-unquote pro laptops you can get a pretty large amount of ram is it still just 16 or can you get 32 in the big one i forget i believe it's still 16 but i will double check That's either way but by the standards of just a handful of years ago a 16 gigabyte notebook is huge we keep putting more and more ram in these things and the error rates surrounding ram maybe they're getting better but probably not as fast as ram capacity is increasing it's kind of like data integrity on the file system where Ding. we keep we keep getting bigger and bigger disks but the error rate for the things we're storing them on aren't getting that much better or not getting it better faster. In some cases, might even be getting worse. And so if we have we have all these bits and the error rate is one in a million bits or one in a billion bits. And we have like, you know, millions and millions and billions and billions of bits. That means you got errors there. Um, and so ECC RAM is RAM that checks your uh, checks for hardware faults that cause, you know, a bit to flip here and there. And it can fix, you know, some kinds of errors and at least report the other kind. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I've always loved uh, the the Mac Pros because they all come with ECC RAM, which is more expensive. But I, I mean, again, maybe it's voodoo. Uh, I think people have done some studies in this, so the ECC RAM actually is a benefit. But it just seems like the hardware cost of ECC RAM is not that big of a deal. But Intel has always segmented its product line by saying, "Oh, well, only our fancy Pro chips get ECC." And so, if Intel is going to be stubborn and they're not going to bring ECC uh, RAM down to their consumer chips, the next best thing is to say, "Fine, we'll make notebook chips with the Xeon feature set." So. Uh, again, we don't know if they have more PCI Express lanes. We don't know if they're like the higher quality processors or the the ones with the you know a, a more conservative manufacturing process or whatever. We do know they're going to have ECC RAM and they can support up to 64 gigs of RAM. And who wouldn't want a 15 inch Mac Pro with 64 gigs of ECC RAM? That sounds like an awesome machine to me. Finally, that sounds like I mean you know going back to the old 17 inch days. That sounds like a truly pro macbook pro as opposed to just like well it's a macbook but it's a little bit bigger and fancier especially now that they're all aluminum and everything so 
I have no idea if Apple will even use these things. Oh, and the other thing they advertise is that it's coming with Thunderbolt 3. But so do the desktop ones. It's just a question of whether they have Thunderbolt 3 integrated into the controller for it. Or is it just like you have to buy the controller chip if you get the Xeons in their chipset? But anyway, I don't know if Apple will use these. I don't know if they're worth using this first generation of things. But I like the idea of ECC RAM and more RAM capacity come to Apple's Pro Notebook line. Uh, so fingers crossed. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, the what they announced, I believe it's only going to be the Xeon E3 line. And uh, and the, the E3s are even closer than, than usual Xeons. They're even closer to the consumer line. Uh, they don't have extra PCI Express lanes. Uh, they do support ECC, as you said. They do support the higher RAM uh, counts on certain chipsets. Uh, our, our tipster in the chat room is basically on fire right now because he's saying that you, could, you can get ECC on the consumer chips as well. I don't know about that. Uh, we'll find out. But uh, they basically... they. The Xeon name on the E3 line doesn't mean much. It, it is it is a very very small differentiator uh, that that doesn't mean much. It's it's mostly like the way Casey's car has the M Sport package. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, because it's all marketing. It's, it's all marketing yeah. segmentation anyway. But like, fine. If you want to do this marketing segmentation, I don't care what it's called. All I want is a laptop with ECC RAM because it's crazy to have 16 gigs of non ECC RAM in a supposedly pro thing. And I think. The, the laptop should go up higher ramp. I'm not saying Apple's going to sell one with 64 gigs, but maybe they could sell one with 32 with the super expensive top of the line. Like, I think people would buy that because it's especially now that the laptop CPUs are practically as fast and sometimes faster and single threaded than some of the, you know, supposed pro CPUs from years past. That if you have a top of the line 15 inch laptop and you can just put more RAM in it, you could probably do some pretty amazing things with that on the road. Um, so. You know, I, whether whether it's just a silly marketing thing and whether the E3s are not all they're cracked up to being, you don't get any extra PCI Express lanes and Thunderbolt 3 is available everywhere anyway. And you could just buy a different controller chipset to get ECC RAM on the desktops. The bottom line is Apple hasn't done that. They continue to sell their laptops, even their super top of the line ones without ECC RAM. And maybe this will change that because maybe they'll have a nice can solution from Intel that will that won't require them to get some different extra chip to make their RAM ECC. On the other end. Uh, the Xeon line is always really holding back what the Mac Pro can do with things like ports and chipsets and everything else because the the Mac Pro uses the higher class of Xeons, the E5 series, and uh, with the extra PCI lanes and a couple other things, and th- those tend to lie behind in chipsets. I I don't know do do the E3s use more consumery chipsets because like it always holds back the mac pro with things like how like how soon it can support thunderbolt or or usb3 or like you know the, the new whatever new port specs come around uh the mac pro is always like the last thing to get that support because intel's xeon chipsets uh that that support the xeon cpus at that level are so they just lag so far behind the consumer stuff and they don't uh, need to why? because they're going to go in servers and no one needs Thunderbolt 3 ports on like a, a racked server somewhere, you know? Exactly. And so why would Apple want to tie another one of their product lines to the the delayed chipset and platform support of the Intel Xeon line? Well, you know, I, if it's the same number of PCI Express lines, it doesn't make a difference there. But I, I think the ECC RAM is the thing. The ATP tipster says that you could get ECC on the desktop things, but not on mobile. So this is a first for Intel or a a first in recent history that you can get a laptop chip from Intel with the ECC RAM support. I, I just think it's like data integrity. It's like it, it should be everywhere. It should be all RAM should be ECC RAM. If it was spread across the entire industry, the small additional cost of, of making the actual RAM chips support ECC and all the controllers and everything 
doesn't seem like that big a deal to me. And I, I think it's like it's literally the least we can do as we add a ridiculous number of bits to all of our uh, machines and, and uh, the RAM uh, category that we're just not. We're just like, well, I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure every single one of the bazillion bits that we send through this thing will always come back exactly as we did it. And a couple of small one bit errors here and there. You can get kernel panics. You can get corrupted data. You can get everything like if you can't trust your RAM. What can you trust? Not your file system. <laughs> yeah, forget that. Oh, my goodness. I, I'm sorry. I have to type out this title. Um, so you're going to have to stall for a second. No. Um, any, so is this really going to trickle down to, to, to anything that I'm going to buy anytime soon? No, you just got a new laptop. Work got a new laptop. I didn't. I, I have. I would say, what, what do you think the actual odds of Apple using any of these chips at all ever in any of its products? Like, I think even that is maybe 50-50. I think low. Really, I, I <laughs> I'm going to give it 50 50 because I, I hold out hope that someone is like, you know what? We could sell a laptop for way more money than we do now. if We just position one as like the suit. But that's what they used to do with the 17 inch. It was like it's like, well, this is barely a laptop, but certain people need it. So we're going to charge them an arm and a leg. And here you go. There should be one of those, shouldn't there? Just like the Mac Pro. Yeah. 4K screen. Sure. 21 inch laptop. Go. <laughs> PowerBook G5. We are ready. Finally. Liquid cooling. <laughs> oh god this is this is spiraling out of control anything else on the uh, zeons our next sponsor this week is backblaze backblaze online backup go to backblaze.com and use code atp uh do they have a code i don't have all the copy here hmm i should double check that uh <laughs> give me a second Everyone go sign up for Backblaze right now and tell us if the code ATP works and then come back and then we'll do it. <laughs> uh, I got it. Okay, I got, a, I got a better read here. Okay. Our second sponsor this week is Backblaze. Go to backblaze.com slash ATP to see for yourself. Backblaze is unlimited, unthrottled online backup, and it couldn't be simpler. I cannot tell you how much you need Backblaze online backup. Now, first of all, regardless of what you think of the market and who's in it, you need online backup. That's step one. You have to you have to realize you need online backup. It is it, it solves such a huge class of potential risks and problems that can cause you to lose your data. Uh, anything that can happen to your house or your workplace can affect every copy of your data if you only back up locally within that building. It's really, really nice to have an off-site backup of some kind that is not tied directly to, like electrically directly to the, the computer it's backing up, uh, and that is not in the same building and not even in the same city as the computer it's backing up. There's a huge benefit to that with all sorts of disasters that you can be safe from uh, and your data can be safe from. So online backup in general, I highly recommend that everybody has online backup. Now, Backblaze, even before they sponsored our show, I was a huge Backblaze convert, and I've tried other solutions out there. I've tried, I've tried multiple other solutions out there, and they work for some people, and that's cool. They, they've never worked for me, though. Uh, I've, I've given them multiple tries, uh, and they've just never worked for me anywhere near as well as Backblaze has. And so between my computer, my wife's computer, and my home server, we have something like six terabytes in, in Backblaze. It's a lot. It, it's something in that ballpark. And it's just five bucks a month per computer. So we have three computers. We pay 15 bucks a month. That's it. Five bucks a month per computer. So for most of you, it's just five bucks a month. And you can back up any amount of data on that. So my computer is like one and a half terabytes worth of stuff. My wife's is like five 
capacity wise. I think it's about three used. Home servers, like another one or two terabytes. All this for a combined fifteen bucks a month for my entire household. Plus, I got my mom on it. I mean, it's it it is so good. I can't possibly tell you how good it is, but I'm going to try anyway. So. Backblaze, it's unlimited and unthrottled. So as I said, unlimited space. There's unthrottled upload speed. So as quickly as you can upload it, they will accept it. And the, the client that they give you, which, by the way, is a great client. It's written entirely natively. It's not running on Java or, any, or you know, Adobe. What was the thing that they're like, they're cross-platform? Air? Air, yeah. So it's not anything weird like that. It's not any cross-platform runtime. It's real native code. And so it's fast, it's efficient, and there's no weird, like, heap limits and weird stuff you get with some of these things. Uh, It's just a good client. It's written by ex-Apple employees. They know what they're doing. It's always, and it's it's also available on Windows and stuff, too. Uh, It's always kept up to date with modern um, OSs. So, like, you know, I don't have to worry when El Capitan comes out in a couple of weeks or months or whatever. I don't have to worry, oh, what if Backblaze doesn't update immediately? Because they will. They always have. It's, it'll be fine. Like, they probably already work on the betas. It's, they're always rock solid for me. They update constantly. And they're, they're good Mac citizens uh, on, the, on the platform. It's, it's native. It looks nice. It works well. And the client, it's smart. So you can, you can set it to do things like, we'll only use this much upstream bandwidth, only do it during these hours, whatever. You can do so much great customization with Backblaze. And then once you have your data backed up to Backblaze, you can access it from anywhere. They have mobile apps for Android or iOS. Uh, and of course, you can always go to their website on other computers. And you can go and you can, you can restore just one file. So for example, if you're on a trip, you left a file on your home, on your home computer and you can't access it you know, remotely, you can, go, you can log into Backblaze open up your backup and download just one file out of your backup onto your vacation computer. It works so well. It, and, and they actually say, um, let me see the exact number here. 25% of their restores are this kind of thing. Just one file being restored. Uh, it's so, it is so useful for this. Even if you just, you know, if you accidentally overwrite the wrong file somewhere and time machine didn't catch it, or you don't have time machine, go to backblaze. It's always this, this nice fail safe running in the background for just five bucks a month. If you need to do a huge restore, if you lose everything, you need all your data back, you can order a USB hard drive and they'll ship it to you. So you don't have to download like a, you know, a terabyte of stuff off the internet. There, there are so many great options here. I cannot say enough good things about backblaze. Check it out. You need online backup. And if you're going to have online backup, I highly recommend Backblaze. Go to backblaze.com slash ATP. Five bucks a month per computer. No add-ons, no gimmicks, no additional charges. That's all it is. Five bucks a month per computer. Get a risk-free, no credit card required trial. You don't even have to pay it first. You can go get a trial. See for yourself if you like it. Go to backblaze.com slash ATP. Thanks a lot. So G is for Google, as it turns out. Oh, God. So I have an announcement to make. Uh, ATP is now numbers. We've we've now bought all numbers. No, Apple would sue us for that name. You got to think of it. I know you have difficulty with the names. I'm not surprised you came up with numbers, but integers. We are buying wow. all the integers. Yeah, we couldn't get integer.com or the integer Twitter handle, so Doesn't we're just going to go with integer with it with a lowercase l instead of the i. Where we're going in the clouds, it doesn't matter whether we can't get the Twitter handle. We'll just buy Twitter and we'll make it integer number forty five. Yeah, this they tried to do that quickly. So to summarize this news, I don't know if it's even possible. It sounds so <laughs> stupid when you say it out loud. <laughs> Google, which is a company that we all know, uh, decided to rename itself Alphabet and then make and then divide up its businesses, divide up all the things that Google did before. Some of the things that, that Google did before are going to be under a new subsidiary of Alphabet called Google. 
and that's going to be like search and and android and uh, web ads and i don't know what the heck goes under that and then a bunch of the other stuff that google does is going to go under someplace else is it just directly under alphabet i forget but anyway it's not under google anymore it will be all that stuff they do with self-driving cars and and giant balloons with wi-fi uh access points on them and biomedical stuff and contact lenses that check your glucose level and google does a lot of weird stuff like a lot of sort of r&d type stuff and so this is this is a reorganization under a new name alphabet that is just that is saying like within alphabet which is still the company the same company that google was they're dividing up their businesses in different bins the super confusing part is that their stock symbol will still be g-o-o-g on whatever that is nasdaq or whatever like their stock symbols will still look like google or google or whatever but the name of the company will be alphabet and google will just be a subsidiary a wholly owned subsidiary of alphabet uh larry and sergey uh sergey i don't know how to pronounce his name are um staying in charge of everything but now they're in charge of alphabet and they appointed a new ceo of the google part of alphabet uh it's not the same guy who did google plus right no what's his name it's sundar pichai uh i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly um and the guy who did google plus left right wasn't that um yeah i can't keep track of the the drama involved in this but uh anyway he left and uh and so sundar from what i've understand everyone likes sundar a lot yeah, he's good. I think I've seen him in presentations. He's always seems like to. He seems like he's he's a good presenter. Anyway, I have no no idea, nothing no nothing about him except seeing him on stage at I O. I think. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, to me, you look at this move, and first of all, it's it's odd, and it's kind of like head in the clouds, kind of you know, spacey, new age, Larry Sergey. Is it spacey? Well, the na- is the name spacey? Because I think the actual move, despite being super confusing is less head in the clouds because it's finally recognizing that they're that this company called google does two kinds of things crazy things like self-driving cars <laughs> and and hot air balloons and all that stuff like just maybe they're good ideas maybe they'll be dead ends like kind of you know freewheeling research kind of you never know what's going to hit or whatever and then very solid predictable same business that google's been doing forever with the web ads and the search and all that other stuff and Having them both under the umbrella of the same company, that I think is more kind of hippy-dippy head in the clouds. Like, we're just like a company where just like we have a campus and you play volleyball and we give you free food. And some people try to figure out how to monetize web ads and other people are trying to figure out how to save the world one whatever at a time. And we're all in the same family. It's like, how would you feel if your job was doing analytics on like uh, keyword search return on investment and someone else's job was like, you know, self-driving cars or something like it. Is that really the same company? You're recruiting for that company just the same way across the board? So I think it it is a little bit more concrete and a little bit more down to earth to say, we really need to divvy this stuff up. So it's clear who's working for what and what the goals are. And then Google can be Google and then everything else can be its own thing. And we don't have to like mix them together. I don't know all the financial implications. Like, does it help them with reporting? Does it help them with with hiding profits and losses and making themselves look better and not having the crazy, you know, it's like alphabet or whatever they is. I wish I knew I read, I read all these press releases and I've already forgotten because it was too long ago. You know, it was only a couple of days, but is all the new research and stuff under just plain old alphabet or do they make another sub company? I think it's just under. Well, there, and there's X, there's like the X labs, whatever. Um, yeah. But, but those things are basically cost centers. Yeah. It's, and it's those funny. don't look good on, on Google's balance sheet. Right. So if you could get them off into another subsidiary, then you can kind of do more hand wavy stuff. Well, yeah, because like what's interesting is like they they didn't spin out things like YouTube or Android out of the new division called Google. 
Um, that fits with Google, don't you think? Like YouTube is a fairly concrete, established thing. It is not like uh, glucose sensing contact lenses. But so is Nest, and Nest is spun out. Yeah, but Nest so is still kind of like, can you make money selling uh, nerds a really expensive uh, smoke alarm that goes off at the wrong time? Did they recall that twice? <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, it, it, it's easy to look at this and see, like, you know, to me, whenever you see a company like like Google, which which has, eh, they they have a spotty record of of BS in their statements. Let's say that. I mean, it's not they're not they're not totally awful, but they're not perfect either. Um, and Apple does a lot of their own BS too. I'm not trying to be all like you know weird about it here, but um, this is the kind of thing that it's worth like you know sniffing around to see like is there a cynical take on this that is plausible for why else they might have done it and. Because you know it, there, there's so much like floaty language here, and the cynical take is you know what you said is like it sure looks like they're moving a lot of cost centers out of Google and leaving Google the you know, the thing that is named Google now as a more focused and most likely more profitable kind of entity. That's that not will... cynical. That's just isn't that just good business? Isn't that kind of like it might be? I don't not, know. Not letting the two things like they're just it just seemed very different culturally and what their goals are and what their priorities should be and combining them into one thing just like confuses like they're they are separable enough because it's not like oh we should spin off uh Mac Paint and Mac Write into Claris. Sorry to use old references for the young people listening like because that will let them like that was a core competency of Apple. Those didn't need to be spun out, but like hot air balloons, man, like that, that's not <laughs> the same company. Right. So I, I think, it, I think it's, a, that's one of the things that I've always admired about Google is that they're willing to do all these things. Like people ding them for it. It's like, what are you doing out there trying to make these self-driving cars? Like if not them, then who, right? They have a bunch of smart people. They have a lot of money. I'm glad they're trying to do these things. Um, and I think those projects will be given kind of more air to breathe and, be under less pressure in a separate company and and yes the flip side of that is the other part of the company will probably look more focused uh it's not like it looks more focused to investors you're still buying the stock in the big overall company i just think it's it's just better organizationally um so i'm not like i don't think there's any real actual cynical interpretation of this except for the one that i heard which sounds like total bs to me is like that, that sundar was going to leave and they were like oh we better make him ceo so it just totally does not you pass the smell test for me at all, but this will be like the stupidest reason ever to reorganize this big giant company. But everything else about it seems straightforward and a reasonable thing to do. I just really don't like the name, but I don't know, Marco. What do you think? I mean, I'm I'm with you for the most part. Like, I, believe me, if there were if there was an obvious uh, cynical take on this, I would be the one to make it. Uh, and and I I don't think there is a clear one. I mean, as you know, there is possibly like the looking better on the investment type of divisional stuff that we don't know enough about to really talk about there's possible issues with taxation uh that that a lot of people have pointed out that this might be like a tax dodge i, I think these are all those are definitely going to be benefits of it they probably were not the cause of it and they were probably not you know not the driving thing that you know that drove this decision with them uh i i think this actually is mostly about what they say it is i, I think this is actually something that they're saying Honestly, that, you know, because you're right, it does make sense organizationally to separate out these really, really disparate things into their own divisions that, that you know, things that have nothing to do with what else the company is doing or have very little to do with what, what else the company is doing. It does make sense to separate those out. That being said, you know, this is all still Google. You know, it's 
putting a new name on it uh, will we'll have some like PR distancing benefits to it, kind of like like the joke that is uh, intellectual ventures doing things through Lodsys. You know, it, 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 this is a this is a thing that is created uh, to to imply that there is artificial distance or disconnection that isn't really there. So these, this is really still the same people running it. It's still the same company. It's all, you know, right now it's even installed in, you know, in the same buildings and everything that are all labeled Google. So this stuff is all still Google stuff. So like Nest was spun off from Google. If you weren't comfortable with Google owning Nest and having the data from your house about your Nest thermostats, if you weren't comfortable with that before, you shouldn't be comfortable about it now either because it's yeah. the same thing. Like it's all the same people. So it's, you know, it is, it's important to keep the perspective on this, that these are not, it's not like how AT&T was forced to split up and they had to make actually separate companies. This is like, no, this is, this is still, you know, all the same people who all are working together. Really? You know, they just in different divisions, but like, this is all still what we know as Google. Maybe and, that's the, the one cynical take I heard. I think it was from Horace Didu or, or someone related to his uh, conversation, maybe a commenter. It was basically like uh, Google makes the money uh, and sends it over to Alphabet. And Alphabet uh, takes the data, takes the money from uh, from the Google part and feeds back into Google data that it collects from whatever crazy things it's doing, like scanning the entire earth or right. every book in existence or whatever so it's, it's an exchange of money and data so it's like yeah it's all it's all entirely it all in the family there's no wall being built between these two things it's just like now we can be free to have different reporting chains different cultures different priorities in our meetings like i imagine they can concentrate on what they're doing and not worry so much about what the google side of things are doing it becomes more like they can pretend within this little universe the little Googleverse. They can pretend they're two separate companies that communicate with each other like two separate companies would, even though they really are the same company and they both have the same boss who can just tell them what to do if they really want to. But <laughs> at this point in Google's history, I think the two founders still are exerting kind of like personalized idiosyncratic control over the company that they founded. They don't need any money. They care about money only insofar as, as far as I can tell, only insofar as it helps them achieve whatever goals they're trying to achieve. So... I am even more inclined not to believe that it's like some kind of like clever financial maneuvering because really they just want like, why aren't we making better progress on our uh, research projects? Uh, you know, why and why are is Google, the Google proper distracted by all these research type of things? We should really reorganize to so both groups can better achieve their goals because that's what they want to do as the founders of the company. Um, like I don't, I really don't think they're motivated. But like, we could become even more rich. I mean, they're, they're not Larry Ellison, right? Hmm. Fair enough. It's funny. Um, I was sitting here thinking to myself, like, what are the um, what are the different stops on the journey from a dictatorial CEO that kind of does whatever and doesn't care what anyone thinks? Perhaps maybe like Jeff Bezos, Bezos, whatever, um, and somebody who just toes the company line, like probably every Hewlett Packard CEO that's ever been. And I feel like Larry and Sergey are no Jeff Bezos, but certainly closer to that side of the spectrum than someone who just, you know, tries to get uh, shareholders as much money as they possibly can. And it's, this seems to me like you guys were just saying, you know, let's, let's try to reorganize the company in a way that makes a little bit of sense. And let's try to remove any shackles perceived or real 
that prevent us from doing this change the world kind of stuff that we really want to be doing. Yeah. And I think the line is like, if, if you feel ownership of the company, if you were one of the founders of the company, or at least were there super early, you feel like you have a right to just do whatever you want with the company and, you know, investors be damned, wall street be damned, you know, to, to, you know obviously to some degree or another, a lot of times founders don't have full control over the company. They lose control. And so someone else, you know, but like if you're one of the early people, you're like, this is my company. I do what I want with it. But if the company has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years and you are like the 17th CEO, it's harder to feel like you have the that you should just be like, you know what? What do I want Google to be? I'm the CEO because the CEO in most companies that have been around that long is beholden to a board of directors and they don't have the control and they didn't put everybody on the board. So they really aren't in charge or whatever. But as founders and founders who are wise and very carefully managed to retain majority control over the company they founded, they feel like this is my toy. This is my plaything. I'm going to do what I want with it. And I think that's a great way to run a company. I hate the other way where they run a company where you're like, the CEO is like a steward for two or three years and whatever happens to the company doesn't matter as long as they get their golden parachute and their bonus and they, they go out and someone else comes in and it's like completely rudderless, uh, no actual leadership, short-term thinking, Those and, and but companies that are huge and have huge revenues and huge impact on all the, the people around them and the people who buy their stuff and you know, that's the worst. So I, I fully endorse this modern style of uh, ambitious very strange unconstrained by conventional thinking leadership of companies even if in the end it ends up doing in some or all these companies in the long term um apple so far i think is the only one that's in the second phase because it's it's founder leader is gone now and it leadership has been passed over does tim cook feel the same kind of ownership over apple as steve jobs did maybe not but i think he's still doing the same kind of things what is tim cook like uh, you know the environment human rights uh Health. diversity yeah all those things that steve jobs was not uh steve jobs was not steering apple in that direction uh at least uh, not to the degree that tim cook is and so tim cook has put his stamp on apple I, I feel like he he is not embarrassed to do that or doesn't feel like it's not his right maybe it's because he was there with steve the whole time anyway we'll all be dead by the time uh apple finally is on its 17th ceo and that will probably be just a, a big mess but for now uh, Apple is still doing well in this area. And I think this move by Google, aside from the name, and Marco, that's what I was asking about before, aside from this name, which I think is really terrible, uh, this move makes sense to me. It is an exceptionally bad name. <laughs> you should call it the alphabet, right, Marco? I, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, that, that wouldn't have helped either. It's just, man. It's but, like, who, who will ever say the word alphabet? Because, like I said, even the stock symbol is Google. We're just going to, like, I think we should all agree on this show not that we're like trying to be contrary or being stubborn or whatever, but I'm just going to keep saying Google. And I think most people are going to keep, even when we're talking about the self-driving cars, it can be like Google self-driving cars. Are people going to say alphabet self-driving cars? I don't, I don't know if Google is really committed to, or if it could even do the kind of rebranding necessary to turn. God, I don't know this chain, but it was like, uh, AT&T, Atlantic Bell, like, the, you know, you ever see the diagram of, like, chain of names yeah. after AT&T was broken up that that eventually, you know, we have all these different other names and they recombine into the monster that is Verizon and the new AT&T. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that kind of rebranding usually only happens when the previous name is so incredibly hated that the value of it is zero or negative. So you make up a new word and people are like, well, I hated Bell Atlantic, but... 
this Verizon company. I've never heard of this. Maybe they're better. It's like, I, I don't know. Singular is terrible. Yeah, but AT&T is pretty good. Yeah, anyway. You know, I've heard I, some wonderful things about Xfinity. <laughs> oh, no. That's, that's, that's where people see the chain. I guess people see the chain entirely. But anyway, Google is a name that people like that has positive value, that is a very strong brand. And I don't see Alphabet ever eclipsing that. Uh, and so I hope people just won't actually use that name except in, like, official documentation and, like, actual press releases and people who have to be journalists. But casually speaking, I'm until until it seems incorrect based on common usage, I'm just going to keep saying Google for the whole thing. Our All final right. sponsor this week is Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price of normal mattresses. And the mattress industry has inherently forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups. Casper is revolutionizing this mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and all those weird mattress stores and scam artists you see and passing the savings directly on to consumers. Now, Casper mattresses are obsessively engineered at shockingly fair prices. They provide just the right sink and just the right bounce by combining two technologies, latex foam and memory foam. Combining those together for better nights and brighter days. Now, Casper mattresses with this combination, they are resilient, they are supportive, and they are very, very comfortable. It is a hybrid of latex foam and memory foam. And then, so all this is available. Now, this is incredibly comfortable. Now, Casey, you have one of these, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And um, it is very, very comfortable. As I've said numerous times on this show before, I actually don't care for memory foam very much. I, I think it's weird. I, I, I wish I could describe why, but I just don't like it. And it is really true that this is memory foam-ish, but in a way that it actually is super duper comfortable to sleep on, even if you're not a memory foam kind of person like me. So, um, yeah, I definitely recommend Casper mattresses. They are excellent. And even if you didn't want the mattress, if you just wanted to say donated or something, it is almost worth the money just to see how it's shipped to you because it is ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, so it's in this like little like and Merlin described it as like a dorm fridge sized box. Is that about accurate? Yeah, I'd say I'd say that's about right. I mean, we got ours a fair bit of time ago, but that sounds right to my recollection. And we got shoot, I want to say it was a full size mattress, although I don't know if the boxes really changed that much. I think we asked about this, and I don't remember what the conclusion was. Um, but suffice to say, it it was about the size of a dorm uh, dorm fridge box, and it is now um, it is now a full size bed, which is really weird. Yeah, exactly. Because like what they do is like so you open it comes in this really relatively compared to a mattress this relatively small box and it's just kind of compressed in there and you open it up and it it like inhales and and it sucks in a bunch of air and it be it inflates itself into this big full normal size mattress and uh, yeah it's pretty crazy huh. It is totally weird, but don't let that dissuade you. In fact, that should persuade you to get the mattress because, I mean, if you look at the mattress now, you would never be able to tell that it was ever in a box that was not the shape it is right now. All right, and you're definitely not getting it back into the box, but if you, need to, if you want to try this thing out, they have a 100-day return policy. So 100 days, try it in your home because, you know, they know obviously like there's going to be skepticism of how do I buy a mattress from the Internet that I can't try out in person. Not a problem. Buy it, try it out at home, see how it opens up. A hundred days you can sleep on it. And if you don't like it, they will arrange a painless return for you. So it really is no risk. And these mattresses are made in America, obsessively engineered, and the pricing is incredibly good. So they price at just $500 for a twin-size mattress, 
and the prices go up all the way to either seven fifty for full, eight fifty for queen, and nine fifty for king. Now, if you try to get a premium, comfortable foam of any sort, or even just a good spring mattress, a king size spring mattress, a king size premium mattress for under a thousand dollars is unheard of. Like it is, it's crazy. That is that is about half of what you would pay, or even even better than that. It's even less than half for a lot of these really good mattresses. Really, it is incredible pricing on these things. And the, again, these are made in America. It's hybrid memory foam with latex foam to really provide the best of both. It is awesome. And you can even get 50 bucks off your purchase by going to casper.com slash ATP and use code ATP at checkout. So definitely check out Casper. Obsessively engineered mattresses at shockingly fair prices with just the right sink, just the right bounce. Casper.com slash ATP. Code ATP at checkout. Thanks a lot. All right. So, Marco, you wrote a um, perhaps contentious, but probably not really contentious post about ad blocking. Would you like to tell us um, why you're such a jerk and why you hate um, anyone who writes for the web? So this was interesting. Um, I I wrote a post uh, basically defending modern day JavaScript blocking, uh, which will, of course, rule out many ads and many, many trackers. And and it's when I wrote this post, I, I was I was drafting it in my head for a couple days, and I was actually really afraid to publish it because I have so often published something that could be considered as negative, uh, or that had that has a negative bent or a negative angle on it, and had and had it blow up in a way I didn't really expect or want, and really regretted it afterwards. And this. In in which I, as a fairly prominent voice in some circles, am advocating basically for many modern ad and tracking blockers. Uh, I thought, knowing as many people as I do in publishing, this could be a problem. And so I showed it to a bunch of friends ahead of time, and uh, I basically said, "Hey, you know, can you like can you read this and let me know if this is like sane to publish?" You know, it was it, like five hours ahead of time. By the time I saw your link to like, "Hey, take a look at this," it was already posted for real. So I I'd say more lead time next time. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. I actually got direct feedback from you or for, from from the relay chat uh, from a few friends who read it faster than you did. Um, and I didn't see the link until much later. Oh, yeah, whose we, fault is that? I am a slack completionist in most of my channels, so I did <laughs> There's read it, a surprise. But I, I should look at what the timestamps are. Anyway, it wasn't that long. Okay. But yes, you did solicit me. I'm not a web publisher, so I can't give you the feedback you're looking for anyway. Sure. Or just okay. tell you to pick different words. Right, right, right. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, so I, I actually really did like kind of sanity check it with some friends ahead of time um, because I was afraid to say this. Um, and, and so the, the gist of my of my article here is that it's called the ethics of modern uh, web ad blocking, and, and the, the this is a lot of stuff that we actually talked about on the show here in the past. Um, a lot of it during the Safari is the new IE thing about web web pages getting new capabilities to make them more app like. I went on a big spiel back during that time a few weeks ago about how we have to be very careful with the web because when if you just follow a link, then your browser will just load that page and everything on it without giving you a chance to kind of say, oh, you know what, no thanks. I don't agree with everything this page is trying to do. You know, like, when you follow a link that somebody sends you or that you th- or if you find in a search or, or whatever, you load all the trackers, all the ads, all the, all the code that page wants you to execute. You just load it and run it in your browser. Like, that's just how modern browsers work. So 
all the collection of your data they're doing you know if if you find something on the page offensive or if it's tracking you between multiple sites through cross-site trackers like ad networks and google analytics and stuff like that uh you're giving all that data up without really being asked first like they take the data and then you can maybe go and try to disable it later (laughs) and and that whole model is has been so abused by web publishers and advertisers and and scammy and legitimate companies alike it has been so abused that now like everything you do on the web is watched like a hawk tracked you have massive privacy violations happening constantly like and this this came to a head a few weeks ago there was you know not only the safari's new ie thing but then like there was uh, people calling out uh, the Verge for their and the Verge calling out mobile web for sucking and everyone's like, well, look at your page; it's full of like fifteen thousand trackers and eight megs of JavaScript and all this stuff. And and Gruber called out uh, iMore for you know because they have great writers, but they have this site that's full of these really crappy ads a lot of the time. And then Renee Ritchie from iMore wrote this post explaining about how basically how bad ad networks are and how they kind of don't have much control over the matter. And so it, there was all this discussion discussion around this, but really what it comes down to is. Uh, in my opinion, I think now in in the same way that pop up ads got so crazy in the uh, in the early two thousands that pop up blockers became basically required usage and then became integrated into the browsers themselves and turned on by default. Um, my argument is that now JavaScript tracking and 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 you know cross site tracking and some of the ads, but it's it's honestly more problematic with the tracking have gotten so bad and so abused that it is now time to take technical countermeasures to reduce or eliminate that tracking if you don't want it. The same way that we took technical countermeasures to block pop-up ads 15 years ago. And I really thought this was going to be, as I said, I thought this was going to be very controversial. I thought a lot of people who were in publishing, which includes a lot of my friends, um, would really be offended that I'm suggesting ad blocking, basically. And it wasn't. Like, the guys from The All were really upset with me, but I don't really know them, and I don't really care. That's it. Nobody else was. Like, I I thought there would be a huge divide. That's why I said, like, I was, I was a little afraid to publish it. Uh, instead, I've gotten hundreds and hundreds of responses on links and just hundreds of people telling me, yes finally yes i agree that's exactly right including many of my friends who are publishers including many publishers i i am not friends with maybe i am now (laughs) we'll see (laughs) uh i i was shocked at, at how positive and supportive and how much in agreement the reaction to this was i mean i can go on my blog and i can post my name is marco arment and i will get more disagreement on that than I will that I, <laughs> from this article. Like, it is, it's crazy. I could, I could say the sky is blue and be like, well, that's a very US-centric view. Like, it, <laughs> it is crazy how much people will argue with me over anything else I ever say. And this that I thought was going to be incredibly controversial, it turns out a lot of people think this and even publishers know. Because like, you know, and I said in the article, like, it's not like publishers are like evil you know, devil corporations, like publishing is hard. It's, it's as I learned when I tried to do the magazine and, and as I've seen, like with my other uh, efforts with, you know, ad supported media and trying to do stuff on online that makes money, 
it's hard, it, and especially if you if you have to have a staff, then your costs are way higher than individuals like me or John Gruber publishing on our own sites. Like having a staff is incredibly expensive, and so it is very very hard for publishers to make enough money to stay afloat. And we see so many publishers shutting down or downsizing, both magazine and website publishers. It is incredibly difficult to make it work, and so they they have been you know kind of forced. Some of them have been have been forced by financial situations. Some of them have just been greed. Um, but but they've been whatever the cause. Publishers, many of whom are, are well meaning, have have been you know quote forced to adopt really terrible ads and integrate really terrible tracking. And there's of course this whole obsession between lots of people about like metrics and tracking every everything everybody ever does on a web page or on media and, or in an app. And, and apps are a whole separate discussion. We'll get to that I'm sure in the future. But there's there's all this tracking going on and all these all this abuse from ads and publishers often just say and like Renee said this like often they'll get a report of some ad being being bad or inappropriate or over the line in some way and they have to go like you know well they have to go to the ad network that served it to them and try to report it and that's often very hard and you know you're just inserting code on your page that will call to an ad network and just have them run arbitrary code that some advertiser entered in some system somewhere on all your viewers computers and so you as the publisher really don't have a lot of control over that the ad network barely has control over that and they have even less incentive to care and so you have this terrible situation where like there's really nobody kind of policing the store in a, in a way that will be effective uh, and so you have to do it as the user yourself you have to adopt uh, technical countermeasures you know the, my, my term it's like you have to start considering installing ad blockers or tracking blockers. Like I, I mentioned, I use ghostery. I know there are others. Please stop telling me about the others. I'm happy with ghostery. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> um, I think, I think now is the time to do that. And what's, what's extra frustrating is that a lot of the, the problems with this, a lot of the problems that have led to this are things that are inherent to the way web browsers work. Like the how they request things, how how cross domain requests work, how cross domain cookies work, um, how JavaScript includes work, and what they have access to, and over the last twenty years that this kind of stuff has been possible and and has developed, web browser manufacturers and standards committees have added all these capabilities to the web that add new things web pages can do and. And new new ways now now the new thing is to make web pages uh, to give them more of the abilities that were previously exclusive only to apps, and to sort of make web pages more app like. But meanwhile, the the core problems that that enable all this terrible tracking and privacy invasion and horribly slow JavaScript and everything, those have not been addressed very well by the web development and and standards communities, and so like. You know, like why? Why have they not addressed that? Why have they? I don't know. Like uh, the the recent years, like you're right up until maybe like a year or two years or three years ago, when browser vendors, especially the you know Chrome and sort of the leading edge uh, modern browsers, really started turning the screws on things that are they're mostly security focused, but they end up affecting advertising, uh, like all anything related to cross site scripting, uh, like the 
the doors have been slamming down on things related to accessing DOM elements and other frames or accessing anything happening in JavaScript that was served from a different domain. Uh, and it's kind of a pain in the butt if, you, you know, if you're doing web development, especially if you own sort of a fleet of your own domains, they're all like something.foo.com and you want them to all cooperate. That used to be easy because that just worked normally. But then they started pulling things down. It's like, oh, I got to add uh, cross origin uh, request headers to everything. And and like the wildcarding is crappy. You can't do star.foo.com. You got to either do star or the exact domain names. And if the domain names don't match up, you maybe something will work, but you can't get your JavaScript stack traces. And it's like... That is, like I said, it's mostly security related. You're like, well, that's not related to advertising. Advertisers can still do what they want because they make you serve it through your own proxy or do something else that gets around all this stuff. Um, but it does end up limiting the privacy invading things you can do. In the bad old days, once JavaScript got, got on your page, you could read all your cookies. You could read things in other frames, even an embedded iframe. And now the, the restrictions are much greater than they were before. So I think that is, like you talk about technical countermeasures, the most important countermeasure is what you mentioned uh before, like the the platforms and the browser vendors, they have much more power than individual nerdy users because we are few and uh, in the grand scheme of things, not that important. But as soon as, you know, pop-ups, everyone hated pop-ups and pop-unders and all that stuff. Browser vendors correctly realized that there is almost no downside to and a big upside to putting pop-up blockers in your browser. So it was practically overnight, they just slammed the door shut on that entire thing. Like that was, they were an epidemic. Pop-ups were everywhere. And it was like, everyone just said, nope, that's not happening. Uh, was there any sort of lengthy negotiation and hemming and hawing about putting the websites we love out of business? Doesn't matter. It was in browsers. It was on by default. That's the end of that, right? There was a little bit of arms race fighting, like see how we can like, if you, when you click on this link, I'll count that as your intentional click to pop uh, up a pop thing. But for the most part, putting that feature in the browser made pop-ups way less prevalent than they were before like i still see them they still they can still trick you into clicking and doing something like that that is a super important technical countermeasure same thing with apple allowing you to use what do they call them content filters or whatever in in ios you couldn't do that before apple has opened that door and i think they made the same calculation they're like we know if we do this the first thing out the gate is going to be a million ad blockers we're going to make it super efficient we're going to make it faster uh because they want people to, you know, download those ad blockers and use them to make their experience browsing the web on their iPhone better. So that's that's like the I almost feel like we are not as involved in the struggle as as we like to think that we are. That is really it's a negotiation between the platforms, the software and the websites um, only as nerds who know about what a, what a Chrome extension is and are shopping around for these, you know, ghostery and disconnect and all these other uh, and you know the good old ad blog and all that stuff most people don't run those things um or don't know how to install them or someone installs them for them but then they break some websites or whatever like navigating that is is uh, mostly a nerd concern but since those are the circles we travel in i understand your concern about like if i post this and i endorse this i know everyone who's reading it knows how to install these things probably and so now by my endorsing it am i encouraging other people to install it and then uh you know am i reducing the revenue to to sites for people i know work for or whatever and when I think about that, like just sort of our own little microcosm, not in the sort of grand scheme of things uh, for the wider web. When I think of that, I think, well, it's, you know, it's the same negotiation we've always had between sites. Like it's not so much you have to just, you have to decide you have to like sort of do, do the calculation. Do you like reading this website? 
yeah, I like the website, but I don't like the this other part of it. All right, well, you can decide. I'm going to continue to read the website, but I'm going to do something that will make a be- it a better experience to me. Are you going to block all ads? Most people know that, yeah, if you block all ads, probably you are making less money for the site. But you're just one person, and maybe you think, well, even if me and everyone I know blocks ads, and even if all the nerds block ads, it's only X percentage, so I still feel okay with that. So maybe you're fine with it. You just have to decide. Like, there are consequences to everyone's action. Like, should I block pop-ups? Oh, what if I'm stopping the revenue that these guys were getting from these obnoxious pop-up ads. If I want the site still to exist, I better enable pop-ups. Well, some sites did go under because they couldn't be supported without pop-ups, but other sites didn't go under. They found another way to make money. If everybody's blocking pop-ups, advertisers just find another way to advertise. So I'm sort of on this on this battle between users and websites and, and browser vendors and whatever. I... I try to, in my actions with my the own stuff that I uh, that I install, try I try to make them reflect, you know, the sites that I care about. I like a whitelist the sites that I care about, but have just become too obnoxious. I feel like I have to send them a signal, like I like your site, I like reading these things, but autoplay video is just not happening. So I'm going to install <laughs> things. I'm going to install things. They're going to stop that, and that is my signal to you, the site, that if the only way you can exist is with autoplaying video, then I'm sorry, but. I don't want you to exist. And I don't, you know, speaking of ethics and and morals and stuff, I think that that is not like, there's no obligation on either side. They, they, they put something listening on a port at an IP address and I, uh, and they want, they welcome the entire world to make requests for it and receive that information. And we can do whatever the hell we want with that information. I can, I can redirect it to a file. I can run it through links or I can show it in a web browser, but just not request any of the flash and not request any of the JavaScript trackers. Like that's, that's the negotiation. And there's nothing, there's nothing ethical about it. It's purely practical. It's like you if you understand the consequences of what you're doing on your end and how it might affect revenue and how it might affect the existence of the thing on that end, also how it might motivate them to change their website. If everybody blocks pop-ups, like then then the sites go, well, we'll have to come up with a different strategy. And maybe that strategy involves a million JavaScript trackers that are not as invisible as pop-ups, but they can end up paying more when we track your uh, habits. And if everyone installs something to block that, you know, they'll have to find another way. This I'm pretty comfortable with this negotiation. I don't lose any sleep over um, over the, the give and take. I think that's just the natural way things work out. The thing I'm mostly frustrated with is for the longest time, it seemed like the browser vendors were kind of afraid to take that extra step. Like, you know, browsers could come with built-in ad blockers, for example, or built-in JavaScript. Tra- like, they don't. They just kind of like, well, we have an extension framework and people can write whatever they want and the nerds can install it and whatever. Uh, but browsers do come with a built-in pop-up blocker. It, it seems like we're ready for the next round of kind of platform owners and browser vendors to take the next step. Uh, because I think leaving it entirely to third parties, even how iOS is doing, is going to create a little bit of confusion. There's a potential for the ad blockers and the anti-tracker things to themselves be scammy. I think someone pointed out the Ghostery is produced by an ad company. The good old ad block extension is also uh, lets people pay it to whitelist their ads like scamminess finds a way it's like uh yeah. you know life in jurassic park uh so we, we still have to be vigilant but i think i'm ready for the next round of like you said technical countermeasures from all parties involved to renegotiate the contract because there's nothing there's nothing that says like that you that the only way sites can make money is to have increasingly scammy ads if nobody can have that much trackers and that much stupid javascript if it ends up being widely blocked they'll have to you know find a different way hopefully a more tasteful way to advertise this is the negotiation they put out content but if we find it annoying they have to you know 
provide something that we like and not annoy us too much. And if they're annoying us too much, we'll do something back. And they, like, they have to figure out a way to make something that people enjoy that also pays money. Uh, and that's why I think the whole thing of like, if you block ads, you're a criminal, you're, you're taking foods from people's mouths, you're trying to put sites out of business. Like there's no obligation on either side of this. We all have to come to a mutual agreement and we feel like we have a beneficial relationship where I enjoy the things that you're writing and you enjoy me coming there to see it and, you know, seeing your ads or whatever. Like that's that's the negotiation we're all in here. And it's not as if one party is just obligated to just choke down whatever the other party does, nor is like on the other side of the coin. Sites that say you can't come read our site if you run an ad blocker. And like our Technica has various times done various detections to see, hey, are you blocking ads? Nope. Sorry, you're not allowed to read our site. They can do that, too. Like that's the negotiation. And oh, yeah. It, because, because our Technica has, has historically, I would imagine, I don't remember the exact numbers, a higher expen- a percentage than normal of ad blockers because it's read by a bunch of nerds. Right. And so it's like, well, you can't have 50 percent of the people running ad blockers. It's just not viable for our business. You are reading our site you obviously enjoy the content we'll try to keep it tasteful we don't have autoplay ads we don't have video ads like we don't have a lot of ads on the page if you block ads you can't read the site so that's that's the the thing we're going through here and i'm i'm ready for the next round of 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 uh oh god i almost quoted the phantom menace i won't do it um everyone knows what i was gonna say uh ready for the next round of negotiation me neither i know the rest of the audience does it's fine possibly now i'm depressed (laughs) <laughs> I don't like that popping into my head. Damn you, George Lucas. How many times have you seen The Phantom Menace? Too I've only seen it like many. twice. Too many. I did a podcast about I don't want to talk about it. That's <laughs> it's a dark time. Wow. So, that was from one of the good movies. Oh, wow. All right. So we should potentially <laughs> be done here but so John can get himself a tissue and cry. Wow. Well, thanks a lot to our three sponsors this week. Fracture, Backblaze, and Casper. And we will see you next week. So what else is going on? Uh, I don't know. I'm tired. John, John, let me make you happy. How is not doing a review this summer? Nice. Pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. See? Just like that, you're back in it. Let's no. do another hour and a half. You want to watch Star Wars with your, all your new time? How about let's start at episode one? Let's, uh, what's that again? You are there's a, cool. There's a couple of weird things about not doing the route. Like, obviously, yeah, free time, less pressure, it's more relaxing, blah, blah, blah. But the other thing is that, you know, of course, I have uh, El Capitan installed. And, uh, well, the thing that's annoying me about it is it seems like, like, first, of all, I have it installed, but I don't use it a lot because it's on my main computer and I don't want to reboot and I don't have a reason to go into it. And then every time I reboot into it, there's like two new updates. But rather than just installing like the latest version on top of it, I have to go through the update like two times. Like I'm a Windows user. It's like uh, upgrade to beta five, <laughs> upgrade to beta six, upgrade to beta seven with a reboot in between each. It's like, just just bring me right to beta seven, guys. I don't Anyway, um, I don't know much about using the operating system because I'm finding myself not using it. So the other thing, exciting thing is going to happen here is like, it's going to come out and I'm going to have to read reviews to find out what the hell. I mean, I think I know most of the stuff, but all the little intricate details and the deep dives and stuff, I'm not doing that myself. So I basically don't know. I don't know what I, I don't know what it's like to use that as my main operating system for any substantial period of time because I just haven't been. It's like I've only booted into it. If you every time I boot into it, there's two more updates and then I do all the updates and I wander around and I enjoy the fact that I don't have to take any screenshots. Uh, and then I fiddle around with it and play with the various options and look at things, and then I reboot it into my regular OS. It'll be interesting uh, to see, like you know, as when when it comes out, and as you have to then turn to other people for their reviews, you're probably going to have some very conflicting feelings of probably immense relief that you didn't have to do it, 
but also immense dissatisfaction with the job everyone else did in your absence. I'm fine with it. It'll be fine. Uh, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to use the new OS because like I see, you know, I, it, it's hard to tell because you reboot into a clean OS. You're like, well, this is so much faster because there's nothing installed on it. And it's like even a different Apple ID and it's all, you know, it seems smoother and cleaner and nicer. I, they've done minor refinements to the look that I like. I think all the changes they've made to the look I endorse, even on my crappy non-retina screen here, it looks a little bit crisper and cleaner and tighter, less kind of low contrast faded and, and edgeless. Um, and yeah, like I, 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 I like everything about it so far. I like the suggestion from Chloe Diggs Pipe Wark in the chat room who says we should pool our money to get John out to California so he can review the actual El Capitan, <laughs> the mountain. Yeah, <laughs> that would know, be amazing. Can we, can I don't we know how I would review the mountain. No. I don't like being on top of the, what is the caldera or whatever that's going to explode and uh, destroy the entire West Coast sometime in the next 50,000 years, guaranteed, or something like that. Oh my goodness! So, are, is there any one particular review that you're looking forward to, or you know, do you know who's doing it for ours? Is ours doing it? Yeah, ours is doing it. I will read theirs. I'll if Vitici does one, I'll read it. Uh, I'm or I'm sure I'll read. Um, Jason, J- Jason will probably do one for MacWorld at this rate. I'll read that yeah. one. Like, oh, you know, I read them all anyway. But like now, I'll reading them and I'll be like learning things. And what I I'm with Marco that. I can't wait until all this comes out and then you quietly tell somebody, one of us, hopefully, oh, my God, I cannot believe the job that these people have done. Like, they did a great job. Did did I ever say that before? No, it's fine. Like, it's fine. They got most of the way, but. Unless there's like some obvious pop culture reference that nobody managed to make. Now, I feel like I will miss, you know, I really I was needed. I was needed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that that annoyed me about the Google Alphabet thing, where they made like the period a link to the Hooli thing. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, oh my god, it's the best Easter egg ever! Like seriously, a period link, amateur hour. (laughs) I think it wasn't even underlined. Like it, it, like this, they styled it in such a text decoration. None. Whoa, advanced technology. Yeah, you you would only see it by looking at the source. My 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 pointless. HTML Easter egg genius will go unrecognized in my lifetime, clearly. <laughs> I'm sorry, John. Who's going to make all the Simpsons links references? Yep. Yeah, I mean, the worst thing about Easter eggs in HTML is you just use source and you can see them all, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not, I was never clever. I was never, like, doing the job. You know, in this age of, of uh, right-click inspect, you can't even hide stuff in the DOM anymore. Maybe if I did it with Shadow DOM. But anyway, I didn't even try to hide it. It was just out there in the open. So it seems like all the Easter eggs and all my references should have been found by now. Uh, but most people just don't even care. So they just go right by it. Yeah, I didn't click. I would at least hover on all of your links, but I didn't click on a lot of them because I knew if I'm honest, I wouldn't, I wouldn't understand the damn reference in the first place. Sometimes I give you the hover. Sometimes I don't, you know, change the cursor. I mean, depends on the reference, depends on the the thing, but, but period. Let's, let's just say that I did not read (laughs) your review on expert. I read it on amateur hour. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't even follow most of the links because I was reading on iPads usually. Because that, that's actually I, that's true too. Yeah, I would prefer to read like you know to sit down, concentrate, not you know not sitting in front of my computer, but like sit down and actually read uh, you know reading mode. And to me, that for me, that's an iPad or an iPhone. And so I would I would always read it on an iPad. I could have done some cool like gesture recognition Easter eggs, but never got around to it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh goodness. So what are you doing this summer other than traveling a bit? Like, do you, do you feel like you have time to fill? I mean, I assume the answer is no, but. Uh, it's more more relaxing. I, I mean, 
I'm, I'm podcasting more this summer than I, than I was because uh, I've got the two regular podcasts now, even one of them, even though one of them is every other week. And so that that actually does make a big difference. So it's basically and plus between all the vacations, it's like at least two podcasts every week. So that is taking up more time. And then, yeah, being on vacation and not stressing about things and just, the, you know, the nights when I'm not podcasting, I can actually just relax and watch an episode of Orange is the New Black and not worry about what I have and haven't written and not worry about retaking screenshots or pouring over details of the OS or trying to get in touch with Apple PR in the three days before I have to publish my thing. Ah. <sighs> Relaxing. <laughs> I am glad. I really am. I'm glad that things are going well and that you are relaxed. So are you relaxed enough to do it for whatever ridiculous name they come up with next year? Oh, no. I'm out. So I'm you're out. not Mike you're not Michael Jordan. <laughs> this is your one and only return. Oh, I'm gonna go play baseball. Come on. <laughs> you never know. I'm already reviewing toasters, kind of. That's true. And bless you for doing it. Oh goodness. They have a door yet? No. Cool. <laughs> See, home contracting work is never done. Yeah, that's yeah, your job. Like, this the goal was to have this done this summer. And I think we'll probably still make that, but, you know, could be into September, whatever. Yeah. Marco, how's your new child that arrived uh, about a week ago? Ah, yeah, the camera. Good? It's uh, It's really good. Yeah, I mean, I've only had it a week so far. Um I knew going into it that I would not be happy with the battery life, that the battery life on all the Sony mirrorless cameras, at least, at least the full-frame ones, is awful. And they have continued that tradition. The battery life is indeed terrible. Uh, they they have partially fixed that problem by just shipping it with two batteries. Seriously? <laughs> yes, they ship oh, it. God. This is the first thing I've ever bought that comes with two of its own batteries. <laughs> so, And they give, you, they give you an external charger also, and it can charge via USB when you plug it in. So it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but uh so yeah so they we have multiple batteries and that's fine and uh the picture quality is just stunning i mean it's just ridiculous um what i especially like about it so this is i'm talking about the a7r2 i don't know if i actually said that earlier i think i forgot to um the sony full frame mirrorless that just came out uh, and what i especially like about it is that my my hit rate or my keeper rate, like the the percentage of pictures I shoot that end up being good and like, and like good enough to keep and not just delete because something was out of focus or whatever. My hit rate is extremely high, way higher than it's ever been with any other camera I've ever used, including an iPhone. And and I think there's there's a number of um, of possible reasons for this. Number one, I think, is just that it has a really, really good autofocus system. Uh, most mirrorless cameras don't have phase detect autofocus. And phase detect, is that's what Apple called focus pixels in the iPhone 6. And it's, what, it's the way that SLRs have always focused, um, where they use you know, certain... I don't want to go into the details. Anyway, the alternative is contrast detect, where you just read the image off the sensor and you, you move the focus motor forward and back until you see, you notice like there are more high contrast edges at this focal length than this focal length. So that's most likely in focus. And that's why you see cameras kind of going in and out of focus as, as they try to find that point that's called hunting. And it's, it's more prevalent in contrast systems. And so for a while, mirrorless cameras only had those and many of them still only have that, but a few of them have phase detect autofocus. And, and this is one of them. And the previous Sony's with the exception of the a seven two, uh, the previous, like the A7 one line didn't have phase. 
So what this this results in way faster and more accurate autofocus than you know it's almost SLR speed. It's not quite there, but it's almost SLR speed. It's it's the closest I've ever seen in a camera that wasn't an SLR. And for my definition or for my usage, I think it's close enough. Um, it's a little early to say that definitively, but I think it is close enough to be you know, very similar to a good SLR. Like I, I used the, the system in, in the Nikon D750 that I rented was, is well regarded. It's, it's another very, very well liked, very advanced autofocus system for SLRs. Uh, I don't think it's the best in the world, but I, I think it's, I think it's certainly up there. And I would say this is actually very close to that. It, it's very, very close focus speed wise. So anyway, contributing to my percentage of pictures that are good being high is that really good focus system that the percentage of pictures that I'm shooting that are, that are, that the focus is correct is very, very high because it's just fast and accurate. And the other thing that I like is, um, there, there's this, for, and, and the sensor, like you can crank the ISO sensitivity on the sensor up like crazy because it's just really, really good. Like, like most modern Sony sensors, uh, which includes the ones in Nikon cameras, most modern Sony developed full frame sensors are just stunningly good with, with, keeping low noise at high ISO sensitivities. Um, so what's good about this camera is that not only does it have that, but it has a feature that is only in a, a, a ridiculously small number of cameras. I don't know why this is such a rare feature and such a relatively new feature, where you can custom, you can set it on auto ISO, and then you can customize what your minimum shutter speed is. So you can, you can, ha- you can run the camera in aperture priority mode, and you can set the aperture whatever you want, and then you can say auto ISO. But keep the shutter speed above, say, one two fiftieth of a second, because one two fiftieth, you know, you can you can you can freeze most motion with most lens lengths around that, you know. So that that's like a good minimum. But if you're shooting indoors at f four or f five point six, uh, in you know a, an indoor lighting situation or or household lighting, which is even worse than like a big you know indoor venue or whatever. Um, so if you're shooting inside at f5.6 and trying to keep one two fiftieth of a second, the ISO has to crank really high, uh, up to like, you know, the, the 10 to 25,000 range, really high ISOs. And this camera, it just looks good. Like it still looks good at those crazy ISOs. Um, and again, you can get this in modern Nikons as well. Um, so I, you know, not to say this is exclusive to Sony, but this is to have this in a, in a, in such a small camera, with so many advanced features. So the combination of the focus system being so good, the auto ISO with the minimum shutter speed, making it so that you can basically shoot anything in any light and have it be sharp as long as you're willing to tolerate some noise at the extreme high ISOs. Uh, and also it has a stabilized image sensor. So, you know, just similar to the iPhone 6 Plus, this has sensor shift technology. Uh, so it can shift the sensor around to do image stabilization no matter what lens you put on it. So even when you're using a really short lens, like a 35mm, uh, which it's very hard to find short image-stabilized primes generally. The, not a lot of manufacturers ever make those because there's a lot, lot less demand for image stabilization in, in short lenses like that than there is like for telephotos and zooms. So it, you can have like very, very short distance, image stabilization, shooting really fast, high ISO, so this the combination of those things just in, incredibly improves the hit rate of, of what you're taking. So rather than shooting like 200 photos in an afternoon of doing something and then trying to pick out like the 20 good ones, I'm shooting like 40 photos and picking out the 20 good ones. It's incredible. Like, like the, the difference 
you know, the time it saves. And even like, I'm even considering turning off raw because the JPEGs that come out of this camera are so good and do such a good job with um, dynamic range capture. And there's a bunch of options I I still can play with with that, that uh, it's just incredible. Like it's even raw is becoming a lot less necessary and therefore like like i'm using the photos app and lightroom kind of in parallel right now because photo the the apple camera raw system doesn't support the raw files for this yet um although i think it does in el capitan which is unfortunate but anyway so i'm only dealing with the jpegs in the photos app and only seeing the raws in lightroom and i like the jpegs better than the color i can get out of lightroom and they they don't look worse for the most part. Like I'll, I'll go to the raw if I have to like pull up shadow detail really high or something, but that's rare. So yeah, overall it's great. Like it's a really great camera. So uh, I'm extremely happy with it. I, I have I have three lenses, and then I don't expect to get any more in the near future. I have three. I have the 35 2.8, little 35. Uh, I have the 55 1.8, which is possibly the best lens I've ever seen. Uh, and I have the 90 macro, which is really ridiculously sharp, and uh, it's awfully close, and it's, and it's massive and heavy. But for like product shots for my blog and stuff like that, I, I'm greatly enjoying that. So uh, yeah, overall, three thumbs up. Every nice. time I think of buying one of these super expensive cameras, I remember a that I'd rather spend that money on a Mac, and b that where I take <laughs> where I take most of my pictures uh, during each year is standing uh, waist deep in ocean waves and i really wouldn't want to be holding a two or three thousand dollar camera in my hand while doing that so far i haven't dropped one and i don't know how many years have we've been going on a vacation to the beach and me taking pictures of kids in the waves but like at least you know six seven eight years haven't dropped the camera yet but it's going to happen eventually and when it does i want it to be like a six hundred dollar mistake <laughs> i really don't want it to be a, a two or three thousand dollar mistake I did fall this year with it, uh, but only on the sand, and the camera was held safely in the air. I wish I'd seen that. I can only imagine the acrobatics you went through to save the camera. What I was actually saving was my sneakers, because we were just like, it was after a run, and like, I didn't have like, you know, I had actual sneakers on with socks, and it was just, yeah, I wasn't going to go in the water, but like the waves, you know, come up, and like one wave started coming up, and it was... Caught me by surprise, and I started to run backwards up the hill in the sand to keep my sneakers out of the water, and I lost my footing and went onto my butt, but the camera stayed in the air, and uh, no water on the shoes either. Nice. That's, you sand, gotta have priorities. Sand on the butt, but otherwise, nothing. Well, that, that's, by the way, that's, this is, is my, you know, for, for people who do not have super expensive cameras, let me give you the most important photography tip. Take your crappy camera and take pictures in ridiculously bright sunlight they look really good because everything is lit up and your crappy camera that <laughs> is not very light sensitive with a tiny little sensor it's fine you can capture any kind of motion in the bright light of a sunny summer's day in mid-afternoon they look really good oh yeah just put your iphone in a plastic bag done well i'll go that far <laughs> no, my sensor right. is like bright my sun, sensor is like bigger than, a, than an iphone sensor yeah, I don't know. Like bright, bright sun is uh, yeah, pretty much any camera. Like that's why the the iPhone, like whenever there's a new iPhone and they, they're talking about how great the camera is, and they show like this is a real picture yeah. of an iPhone. It's always like this bright, sunny, right, beautiful right. scene in California. It's like no, that's or it's that's like not... a close up of a flower in in the, right. the midday sun. Yep, uh, that will always look good. That's uh, with my cameras. With the cameras I buy, I don't even bother taking pictures indoors at this point. Like there's no point. Like they're just they're always going to be terrible. There's 
just it has to be outdoors and it has to be sunny, uh, which is fine with me. Um, there's plenty of times when those conditions are met and I can get lots of pictures of uh, family and things. We still get professional photos taken. Now I think we're down to once a year uh, just to have someone else take them so we can all be in the picture and have family photos. And the professional photographer uses a fancy camera, so they look better than ours. But uh, I think uh, we are adequately documenting our lives at this point. As long as it's all backed up, we'll be fine. All right, because, uh, you know, the file system is uh, not doing its uh, job would for you. you, you got to make fractures of some of them, right? Yep. Please don't encourage him. <laughs> 2017, I can feel it. Wow. I don't even know what to do. <laughs> I'm already discounting next year. <laughs> All right, what else is happening? Anything? How's Bay uh, potty training? Uh, that good? Yeah. This is getting dragged out like my home repair. <laughs> yeah, which, which year, finishes first? Year of renovations, and it's the year of diaper removal. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, Did I tell you uh, Declan's crawling, like, a lot? Oh, it's it's moving quickly through the stages, huh? Yeah, that's uh, petrifying. That's Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> uh, especially since our house, like, we've been gradually baby-proofing more and more, but the pr- baby-proofing strategy we have right now is, oh, God, don't do that, and running over and picking him up, <laughs> uh, which clearly is not sustainable. So, um, yeah, that's a thing, and that's scary. You have a gate on the stairs yet? No, he hasn't tried climbing the stairs as yet. I just saw the picture of him trying to climb the stairs. Oh, no, that was because um, <laughs> Aaron, I think, had plopped him there or something like He's that. He's like, probably I- halfway up the stairs right now. Go look. I would hope he's halfway down the crib right now in that he's sleeping, but I understand what you're saying. Um, now, we we have a baby jail that we haven't yet taken out because it's the first kid. We only haven't, like, sanitized it or whatever. Not sanitized, but, um, you know, wiped it down with the cleaner oh, and all that jazz. Because that it's the first, first child. Kid, right. yep. It's the first right. child. What do you want from me? You're supposed to be strengthening his immune system. I'm going to send you some animal poop. Rub it in his mouth. <laughs> right. Take it. Come to New York. Take him on the subway. Oh, don't. Maybe not. Maybe different germs. The animal poop is key. That's what you need. Don't, don't, don't <laughs> beat on the subway. I love the subway. I, I, I miss the subway. You go to San Francisco and you get some human poop. Oh, that's the truth. Did you see they were doing like reflective, P-reflective sidewalk paint or they were looking at it or something that, like that? That is it, that treating lamp the, came down. Treating the wrong side of that problem. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, just like if, if you get, if everything gets to the point where you have someone who needs to go and the only place they can go is the street putting things on the street to prevent them from going to the street. That's not how you solve that problem. Yeah. Exactly. To get that person to not be in that situation in the first place. Yeah. That's how you solve that problem. Where's John Roderick when you need him? We, um, when we were in San Francisco, um, not this past June, but the one prior, we were over near Fisherman's Wharf and they had a completely free standalone restroom that apparently, I don't remember the details, but would like flash steam itself in between each usage. So you would use it and then you would have to wait like a minute and a half um, in order for it to like completely sterilize itself or so it claimed. And then you could go in and, and use the, the restroom after after that. It was really, really weird. It's the vitrify button on the outside. After you exit, you press it. That is a reference to a video game that nobody will get except for maybe Tiff, who is right now playing a very good video game. <laughs> goodness oh uh, yeah yeah did you get the uh journey for playstation 4 or whatever it is the thing the new thing that came out do you have a playstation 4 i don't remember me yeah god you're such a slacker yes i have playstation 4 <laughs> yes yes i got journey i tweeted about it when i played it what did you oh my bad i don't know I, uh, you're always talking about journey i probably just filed that under john talking about journey again i had an exciting journey adventure for my first ps4 playthrough i was you know since i have 
I'm experienced in the game. I was going to do the first run through and get the white robe. Uh, and I was playing through the game and I missed one of the symbols that you have to get to get the white robe. And it was like, boy, you know, and you can't backtrack. You can only backtrack to a certain degree. And I was like, you know, it's like, wow. Well, like in my attempts at backtracking to see if, the, if I could find the one that I missed, I got some of my scarf bitten. And, you know, anyway, I played through the game and I was sad. And I saw a little screen at the end. Uh, and then I went back through and I realized actually I had gotten them all. I was doubting myself. I, I, I don't know why I thought I had missed one, but apparently I did. So it was, a, it was a happy ending after all. And I've got my PS4 white robe and I'm happy. <laughs> Everyone should buy a PS4 and buy that game and play it and not listen to any spoilers about it. No, it is a great game. As much as I've given you a hard time about it, it is, it is genuinely a great game. It's one of the better play, one of the best games I've ever played. So you I'm relying on you, John, to tell me and Tiff when we need to, when we should buy a game system it'll probably be a ps4 but like when we should buy the next generation game system and you for should have, what games should have already bought a ps4 because for tiff, what games it doesn't matter tiff needs you should buy every system tiff deserves to have every game console i don't understand why you're denying her this <laughs> i don't understand why she just doesn't buy it herself like this is something can, that you yeah. should have no i mean well first of all are we still on first generation hardware uh yeah, no one has revised yet. I think. Let me think. Has there any been any revisions at all? I don't know on the Xbox One. If they, oh, did they tweak the Xbox One controller? Maybe. Anyway, substantially. Yeah, first gen everything. Yeah, uh, is, plus is or minus like, small tweaks. Are there any like rumored die shrinks on the horizon for the PS4 or anything like? Because like the they're, first they're generation com- hardware is always. I know they're, they're coming crap. eventually, but I don't think they're coming this year. Not this year. year, you think? No. I, here's the thing. I don't know what the Xbox One is like, but the PS4 it's quieter than the P- my slim PS3. I don't know if that says anything because I think my slim PS3 is actually kind of noisy, but my full size clunky PS4 is quieter than my, you know, second generation slim down PS3 was. Uh, and, and it's not, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what you're waiting for. I wouldn't wait for the slim one. I feel like that there could be games that Tiff could be playing right now on either one of these consoles that she would enjoy and that she should be able to. Like what? What games? Well, she already played Last of Us. She might go through Last of Us Remastered. I think she might actually get into Destiny. Who knows? Um, I don't know. I have to send you a bunch of uh, game recommendations. But on on each platform, there's... I mean, she's playing Prison Architect, for crying out loud. She has has a (laughs) wide range of things that she's interested in. I'm sure she can find games on either one of these things. But she gets a PS4 first piece is better. Now, I mean, we've... I don't think we've had any temptation to get an X-Bone. Like, at all. Like, I I can't even tell you what games are on it. I have no idea. It doesn't doesn't even matter. I know you're not. It's not for you, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, how's the Wii U doing? Is there anything useful on there coming out? I know everyone's doing that Splat game or whatever, right? Yeah, so. I still haven't had time for that. His destiny is absorbing me, but uh, that that uh, I'm still waiting for my Zelda, which got delayed until next year, which is fine for me. Take your time. Just give me a good game. Um, Mario Kart's still fun. All the Mario games. Nintendo Land, I still think is is interesting. I'm just patiently waiting for Zelda for that uh, machine. But yes, Splatoon, I don't know. I, I would not. I think the PS4 is a much more pressing purchase for you than the Wii U. Yeah, probably. Oh, um, he mentioned Fallout 4. What's that for? It's not for PC and all the consoles except for the Wii U. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not into those games, but Tiff might be. But yeah, I think those are all like cross-platform. All right, yeah, I'll take a look. Maybe maybe when that comes out, I, I would love to. If there is a die shrink of the PS4, I would love to wait for that. You know, if it's if it's going to be in the next year, I would rather wait for that. I, I feel like it's not going to be this holiday season. I think you have to wait till next year. But I don't I don't know. I haven't been reading up on the rumors because I've already got mine, and I, I really don't want to know if like. Right. But like I said, it's not. It's it's quiet. Like I don't even have it under my TV. I'm sitting like a foot away from it because it's in my you know computer area. Um, 
it's loud enough that I didn't want it on my desk. I wanted it in a little shelf, like just below the desk, but it's quiet enough that when it's in a little shelf below the desk, I just don't hear it. All right. Cool. Go team. I went to, uh, I, I was at the mall today. I, I had to get my watch replaced. Um, oh, you did end up doing that? Yeah. I, the Taptic engine was really, fl- was really getting very, very weak and was missing lots of taps. And, uh, so I went and, and they had to send it away, so I had to be without my watch for uh, about four days, something like that. Oh, really? They don't just like do an on-the-spot replacement? I think they do if you have Apple Care Plus, but hmm. I don't, and so they didn't. So they had to send it away, and uh, it, it did get replaced. And as far as I know, the the ones that get sent away, I don't think they ever actually get repaired. I, I from from the stories I've heard from people, they either come back unchanged if like with like you know oh we couldn't reproduce the issue or you get a new one back like i don't think they're actually repairing them and sending those back uh, i missed it before did you send it with bands or no 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 like you walk in they detach it they put it in a box and they, they so hand like give a, your naked band back it's like a little tiny ipod nano or shuffle that you give them yeah basically so uh yeah so it no so i got i got it back got a new one back uh it isn't actually like the tactic engine is still not very strong but it is now a lot more consistent. Also, the the crown is much more consistent so far in this. Be, my old one would stick after like a few hours, no matter what I did. And yes, I tried the water thing and it didn't help. It would stick. It would become stiff, like you couldn't turn it, or it just got harder. Yeah. To turn. Like it would be cut. Like like it, it would have like a lot of friction on the first turn after a while. So like if you hadn't touched it for a few hours or a day or whatever, then like the first time you went to do it, it'd be like stuck in place until you got it moving, and then it would spin freely. Yeah, I have to say this is part of my motivation of not getting the watch right away was I wanted to get one. If I was going to get one at all, I wanted to get one after manufacturing had ramped up and they'd worked out all these issues after the store, you know. And so you people who ordered early were the ones who were going to get the ones with like the weak taptic thing that slowly died from the manufacturer that had bad quality control and whatever this little crown thing. Although I, I confess I have not been able to get myself like I barely ever touched that crown. I, I just I just I touch the screen like I'm, oh, I'm like a kid God, touching yeah. the screen on their Kindles like and I don't think it's a bad input device I think it, it's it's a good way to do things to get you know for all the reasons they described like it gets your finger off the screen you can see the whole screen while you scroll it's just that I don't know I just don't you know the only time I ever turn it is when I'm just like fiddling with it idly which I think is a good feature like the little clicky thing on the pen that you just play with but <laughs> but silent um, but I, I probably you know I wouldn't even know if my little turny thing was getting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> messed up like Marcos. Yeah, but it it was interesting going without it for a few days. I, I keep I'm planning on writing a big review, um, but the the gist of it is going without it for a few days is uh, illuminating because I, I I wasn't sure like how much I would miss it, and it turns out the answer is a lot, and so I'm I'm very happy to have it back now. So I'm gonna write up write up my review of it and. Uh, Overall, I like it. That's it's the spoiler alert. I like it. It's really good. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. I still have no interest in watchOS 2 development yet. Um, maybe it'll change when it gets closer or when it comes out, but I haven't even started watchOS 2 port of Overcast app yet um, because it's just... I don't really like the watch as an app platform. I love it as as a device for myself but I don't really care for it that much as, a, as an app platform. And uh, and I, th- I think it's too early, and, and the user base for it is too small 
for for it to be worth dumping tons of time making native apps for it right now. But we'll see. That could change. We'll give it give it a holiday season. And maybe a version two, and we'll see what happens. I also, uh, on the way out of the mall, I stopped at the Tesla showroom that we have in that mall. Oh, no. Here we go. And they had the red one on display. And, and? so I could see it in showroom lighting, at least. It wasn't outside, but uh, I have seen them. I have seen the outside ones briefly in red, like in real life. And I think the red looked really good. And I think if I get one, I think that that's probably the color I would choose. And uh, Adam agreed. He was with me. He liked the red car a lot. He also really wanted to drive home like the the big bottom half disassembled one that only has like the drivetrain separate <laughs> that they have in the showrooms. <laughs> he really wanted to drive that home. Was very upset that it had a big do not touch sign in front of it. But and uh, do not touch really ours. You're allowed to mess with. That's the whole half the fun of going to that store. I guess really? maybe they don't want kids climbing on it. But that's yeah, that's probably it. No, yeah, we can't ours. You can go. You can the full the full sized car that's parked in there. You can do whatever you want to that. But the the big like drivetrain only version you got to stay away from. Really? But, I wonder why that is. Maybe kids are injuring themselves on it. Maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah I, so yeah. We went there, and the, honestly, the red looks very good. I was also I was concerned about the sunroof because it's one of those like whole roof things <laughs> yeah. that where you You're can't concerned? fully oh, all right. you not can't fully room. close it. <laughs> no, not that. Come on. <laughs> no, I was I was concerned because you can't fully close it. And I like in the summertime now, I keep my sunroof fully closed because it's too bright, like with direct sun in the summertime. And I, I've been able to open it less and less recently uh, because it's so sunny and I have so little hair that I just get a headburn. So I have to like wear a hat if I have my sunroof open, like all the way open. And I hate wearing hats and they just blow off and it's stupid. So I, I was I was wondering whether I should even get a sunroof at all. Um but uh, yeah, they, it's it's actually very heavily tinted, so to the point where it's barely even worth having a sunroof in this car, um, for for light reasons. <laughs> but my concern about it being too bright was unfounded, and the red looks really good. Can you get solar panels on the roof if you don't get the the sunroof? I don't think they offer that. I don't think it's enough power. I thought they did. They used to. Uh, it's not going to power anything. It's just like the little, just a little help. Eh, I don't. I haven't heard of that. I, I, it certainly doesn't seem like it's, a, it's an option today. But I yeah, I, don't, I still don't know if that car can pull off red. I see the red ones all the time, and it's like borderline. Like very few cars can pull off red. This one, probably, kind of. I don't know. I, I still like the more, more conservative colors for this car, or like even the more conservative red. But it's not, it's not hideous. I, the, she's my, not a hunchback. Nope. That's a reference. Nope. I know I can tell it's a reference, but I can't tell you what it no, is. No one will get that one except for people who I've recently explained it to. It's fine. Right. Some of these are just for me. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But Trust like, me, but it's apt. To me, it's like every color they are. Like, it isn't, it isn't an amazing looking car. They don't offer any awesome colors. They offer some colors that are almost awesome. And you're just you're just down the black. Just It's the chrome and you're bored with black, right? That's it? It's a, yeah, it's, I am bored with black the the it is too much chrome i think for for a black car and for for the way they use the chrome and i and they don't seem like they have incredibly high quality paint uh i haven't seen the the metallic black in person yet like they have like the little swatches in the showroom but you can't really tell anything um the flat black i didn't care for at all i see that one a lot in real life um the metallic black i have not seen yet but it doesn't like from like the swatches they have in the showroom and and from their other black it just seems like they they don't have high quality enough paint and body work yet to really make that look really good the way BMWs does, I think. I've seen a lot of gray 85Ds around 